Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Hello again to the audience of the Final Game Confidential Part 4. Today is the 19th of April, 2020, a Sunday, at 10.31pm. Uh, also, the nine-year anniversary of the uh, passing of Elizabeth Slayton, marked today by the release of a small uh, uh, mini-episode called Fare- Farewell, Sarah Jane, by Russell T. Davis. It's very nice. Uh, bookending a uh, uh, noting the uh, passing in-universe of Sarah Jane Smith and the closure of the Sarah Jane Adventures. That's a historical note I thought I should mention. Um, but at this moment, I'm recording uh, to answer the uh, specific episode questions um, for this uh, confidential installment, um, which accompany so far all of the uh, installments uh, provided by uh, uh, Mark McManus, the... Uh, showrunner of the Doctor Who podcast uh, excuse me, the uh, Trap One podcast Trap One Doctor Who podcast so, um, this time around since the fourth episode of the final game featured several uh, several monsters from Doctor Who namely the Daleks and the Ogrons um, these questions center around uh, monsters in general in Doctor Who so I'm happy to speak about uh, these as, in terms of questions and so the first question is uh, what is... Uh, which is my favorite Doctor Who monster. And if... To answer this question, um, if we take a somewhat broad view of um, what defines a monster in Doctor Who, um, because it tends to be when it comes to the villains of Doctor Who that there are individual villains, you know, that are often called bad guys or villains, like the Master or Davros or Omega or, or such. Um, and then there are the monsters, which are villainous races, uh, like the Daleks, the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors, and such. If we use the term, as I said a moment ago, to uh, include the villains of Doctor Who, meaning the individual bad guys, then my favorite is certainly the the Master. Uh, no question about this. Uh, but if we take the more, slightly more restricted meaning of the word, meaning the, the, the villainous, monstrous races, so the monsters, which is what this term in Doctor Who tends to mean, historically and culturally, then um, it's it's a little harder to to say. I like all, all these I like all these monsters. I but but I think that my hmm very hard one. I'll I'll, I'll narrow it to my top three, and I might give a final answer at that point. Um, and my top three are the Daleks the Cybermen, and the Ice Warriors. And if there's a fourth, I think this, we could say the Sontarans. And so I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll narrow it to those top four. Uh, the Daleks, the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors, and the Sontarans. But my top, in that order. Uh, in that order. Um, when it comes to the monsters in Doctor Who, um, there's no question that the, the top number one for the series is, um, the, are the Daleks. And I think there's no question that the top number two are the Cybermen. Although in recent years, certainly since the um, since the Stephen Moffat era, in terms of frequency of appearance, the Cybermen have definitely been number one. Um, just because they've been featured quite a lot, and much, much more frequently. 
And I think some people might argue with more success in certain uh, areas of, of, of portrayal than the Daleks have. Um, but because of the Dalek mania and their association with the very beginning of the series and the first Doctor's era, um, the Daleks are definitely number one. Um, that could change, of course. Like I said, it almost seems like a slight inversion of, with that number two in the sense that the Simon are appearing a lot more recently. But, um, but I love the Daleks. I think they, they would be my number one. Um, I don't rock the boat or break from too much tradition. I just love their design and their, their presentation, that, that palpable, fearful evil, and that sense of cold, unthinking, unwavering um, hatred. Uh, against all other life, and sometimes against themselves, for failure, for impurity, for incompetence. Uh, those types of failures result in, in extermination. Uh, since there are so many, like cockroaches, the Daleks, since there are so many um, Daleks, you can exterminate a few uh, for those um, infractions, for those crimes. My number two, as I say, are the Cybermen. Um, the unfeeling logic, but also the sense of body horror that the Cybermen um, are reflections of what humans could be because they were once human uh, except from a different planet from uh, Mondas, a twin planet to Earth. Um, I, I also particularly like to a slightly lesser extent with the Daleks but very much so with the Cybermen which, which I very much like is their, the changing of their appearance that they are often always recognizably Cybermen but there are so many variations. Daleks have variations also but, uh, but in, Cybermen's almost um, certainly with pretty much every doctor and almost at times down to every story depending on the era uh, very much so more so in the 60s that the uh, the Cybermen could look different from story to story appearance to appearance essentially for example they looked a certain way in the 10th planet then they look radically different probably the biggest radical shift they look radically different in the moon base pretty much the same in Tomb of the Seven but then they look quite different in um, the wheel in space, and then quite different again with the square heads in the invasion. Um, that persists, of course, in images through the um, John Pertwee era, who doesn't have a Cyberman story, but um, like, it's like that in Call of Duty, but then a very different appearance in Revenge of the Cyberman, and then a, what kind of becomes a solidified appearance for a while throughout the 1980s, uh, beginning with Earthshock, and then you see that appearance with a minor variation all the way through um, S Silver Nemesis. And then into the new series, you have the various versions, um, the Cybus Cybermen, essentially through the Tenant years, a slightly altered version in uh, the Matt Smith years until you get to um, Nightmare and Silver, where we have the, the version that's persisted into um, the Capaldi era, and even a little bit the in the um, the Lone Cybermen of the Jody Whitaker era. Um, the chest unit essentially is a um, that upgraded version. Um, but now we have these um, warrior casts, which are interesting. Um, I have just listened to uh, Terry Cooper's question uh, and answers um, for this confidential, and he, and I agree with him that I very much like the way the Simon looked in the most recent episodes, series 12, but I also agree with him that the spikes are a, little, are a strange, um, a strange addition. Um, I understand that it's a warrior cast, but I'm not quite sure what the spikes do. If we see them again with spikes and we see a function to the spikes, that will, that, that will be quite interesting. So I'm not saying they're horrible. What I am saying is I find them a questionable um, addition to that design. But a good look. Uh, it is, but overall, it's a nice look to the Cybermen. 
Um, but not just their look, but also their the sense of logic and survival, that emotionless desperation to survive, that drive, that ambition, certainly that all-powerful ambition, and to make people like them. It's quite different from the Daleks. Daleks don't tend to make others, unless under extreme conditions, they don't tend to make other people Daleks because of racial purity and such. But the Cybermen are fine taking, depending on the medium and the era, a lot of different styles of of uh, source material to create, to multiply their, their race. And I say different eras in that sometimes, sometimes you have as I think it was in Nightmare and Silver and others, the sense that they only um, upgrade or convert. Again, different nomenclature. Um, uh, humanoids, people that look human and such, but in different eras, they might convert, um, they might um, you know, upgrade um, other t races. Sometimes you've, you've had references to stories with um, um, Ice Warriors being uh, turned into Cybermen, or... Um, Selene being turned into Cybermen and such. Um, so it's... but There's a sense that no one is really safe. Humans are top on the list because they're like most like the Mondasians. But uh, um, and anyone could become a Cyberman. Number three for me is probably a little less um, common um, because I direct anyone's attention to this uh, neat little um, um, excerpt from a Doctor Who... Um, uh, documentary of a, a DVD documentary. Now, I don't know which documentary it is, but but it was a monsters documentary. I think it was kind of the uh, the 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 dream team or something like that, where everyone's talking about who are their top monsters, and everyone agrees. As I said, that Daleks number one, Simon number two. That's very clearly defined. Number three onwards is not defined because it starts to become. There's so many that are equally. It's not that there aren't any good villains to fill that slot. It's just that there's so many equally strong villains that uh, that. Um, I would say certainly prior to the new series, it would everyone had a different opinion. I I would think now if there's any um, third slot, with the since the moth had years, it would probably be the Weeping Angels, for a lot of people because they were they've been featured a lot. Certainly, I think they would that would round out Moth Stephen Moffat's top three because those three monsters appeared together in several adventures um, in his cat in his kind of. Um, um, catch-all cameo moments such as um, the time of the Doctor or um, um, the closure of series nine, Heaven Sent, and such, um, where you see in the cloisters of Gallifrey, in the Matrix cloisters, uh, the Daleks, the Cybermen, and the Weeping Angels. I like the Weeping Angels very much, but for me, my top three uh, round out with the Ice Warriors. And like I said, some for some people it's the Ice Warriors, some people it's the Sontar, some people the Yeti, and such. There's no clearly defined top third after the Daleks and the Cybermen. The Ice Warriors, um, I think the reason why they would edge the Sontarans for me as, as, as my top three is just they are very imposing um, and beautiful creatures in, the, the, in that they have a color, a very beautiful color, um, green. And I love the uh, the color green. It might just seem quite simple, but it's it's Doctor Who's essentially answer to Martians and and the little green men. Except they did a wonderful subversion of that um, trope in that make, in making the Martians fearsomely imposing and intimidating, being large, um, large, tall, imposing, armored creatures. Those are people where I could see maybe some spikes would be interesting. Uh, at times on their on in their armor, and I also like it that they like the Daleks and the Cybermen. Um, I like threes in the sense of there's a shared 
element to them. And the Sontarans don't, one thing they don't have that the Daleks and the Cybermen share with the Ice Warriors is a sense of cybernetics, a sense of uh, a metal covering, a metal mask, so to speak. Uh, the Daleks and the Cybermen have it much more so, obviously, because of their, um, their, their tank nature. Certainly the Daleks have a tank nature. They're inside a tank. The Cybermen have a silver color to their costume, making them appear clearly metallic. Uh, the Ice Warriors, it's a little more organic, but it's they are definitely wearing armor. It's a little less known, but they are wearing armor. They have on armored, um, armored helmets, armored uh, breastplates, armored um, limbs, um, armored hands. And there is a cybernetic element that they're grafted into their bodies um, are cybernetic elements, such as their sonic weaponry. Um, sonic um, cannons, sonic um, armaments and such. Less known factor, a little known factor. And it's, as far as I remember, in the Curse of Peladon, the when the, the um, Ice Warriors made their first appearance in the John Pertwee era, they don't. I don't believe that their costumes had were equipped with um, with the sonic cannons of the Troughton stories or the later Monster Peladon story. They instead had these handheld uh, sonic rifles. So there's always sonic technology as as their basis. Um, but uh, I really like the Ice Warriors and the, 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 the green color to their costumes and then those red eyes. It's very beautiful. Very intimidating. And I, I'll say a top fourth for being um, the Sontarans because um, I really like their costumes again. It's, in the early years, it's black, more recently blue, and the lesser-known kind of red of the Shake the mid-'90s, uh, 1994 direct-video um, spin-off story, Shakedown, tying into the novel by Terrence Dix. Um, I really enjoy the Cybermen, I enjoy the, excuse me, the, uh, Sontarans, the, uh, the visual of them removing their helmets, and, um, in many stories, uh, classic and new, and they're, they're called potato heads, you know, that, they're, the shape of their head, the coloring, there's a nice color to their skin, the brown, the leathery brown and such, um, their hands, that they don't have necks, so the shape of their heads and such, um, and their weaponry I like. And they're, I think Terry called them the Klingons of the of the um, of the uh, of Doctor Who, and I, I can agree there. They're often based on honor. I'm not sure if they're probably not as honor obsessed as the Klingons, but you but they have that 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 uh, drive, and that's certainly being bred for war. Um, so I'm enjoying this, enjoy very much the Sontarans. What might make the Sontarans in a certain way a top three? that actually could edge them over the Ice Wars, although the Ice Wars, I think, will always be a t the, my, my top third. And certainly the Santarans um, appear uh, in the classic series, at least, and, and the new series more often uh, than the Ice Warriors do. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, or wherever, whatever it is where you are. It's the 1st of May when I'm talking to you now, and... Uh, quite a long time into the COVID-19 lockdown and I've taken myself out for a little walk by the River Thames in Reading, England. It's raining, there are birds. Just to talk to you a little bit about my favourite monsters from Doctor Who. My name's Denise Sutton and I play Elizabeth Shaw in the final game, which I'm really enjoying. Um, so, who are my favourite monsters? Well, it has to be the Cybermen. I mean, in the Doctor Who universe, they're now cited as being an inevitable part of... 
human evolution in that uh, humans will try to repair damage and faults and disabilities and one of the best ways to do that is with artificial limbs and uh, this is becoming more and more apparent all the time and um, yes what happens if it does get taken to extremes what happens if uh, we do get to the point where it's decided well what we can build artificially is better than the human machine and uh, that's the way we go down. I mean, it's a dreadful, dreadful thing with the lack of uh, emotions and the urge to conquer all other species. But, uh, yes, I think that's the horror for me, that they could happen. Daleks and weeping angels and Marlus and other things seem a little bit more removed to me. But um, the idea of the Cybermen, it plays into our ideas of frailty and illness and imperfection. Um, As to what makes a good monster, I think they need to capture the imagination. They should have a certain beauty about them. I mean, uh, Cybermen themselves are very, very beautiful creatures, although some iterations are more beautiful than others. Um, But the insectoid insects, like the Zabi or the Wurren, I know, I know, they've got the wrong number of legs to be insects. <laughs> it's a Friday morning. And um, weeping angels are, of course, beautiful statues and they can capture the imagination because you never know when you're going to run into one of those. And the robots from the Robots of Death that were designed to be beautiful but could also be so deadly. Um, And then on the other side of the coin, monsters can also be good monsters if they have a certain grotesqueness about them. The Sontarans, the Yeti, the maggots from the Green Death. Um, Honourable mention should also be given to the Silurians and the Sea Devils, who are also beautiful, particularly the um, New Who versions of the Silurians. Absolutely stunning creations. Which monsters have I not seen for a while that I would hope would make a future return? Well, I really enjoyed the recent Big Finish story where Joe Jones, nay Grant, teams up with Captain Jack to return to the village and uh, the mine last seen in the Green Death. The maggots and the environmental message of that story definitely deserve to be revisited. And yes, people do still have a horror of maggots, even when they're tiny. So giant ones, definitely, and what they grow into as well. I mean, can you imagine how spectacularly beautiful and gruesome all at once they would be as a modern CGI creation? Well, that's it from me. I'd better be on my way before I get too wet. Thank you. Bye. Hello everybody, my name is Lee. I play Sam Jackson in The Final Game. One of my favourite Doctor Who monsters has got to be the Daleks, I'm afraid. I know it's pretty obvious. When I was six, I received a Dalek for Christmas, a remote control Dalek, and I couldn't have it in the house. I was so scared. So uh, that just goes to show the power of the Daleks. What makes a great monster? Well, the Daleks are absolutely spot on. 
because they have no humanoid features. And then when you realise that inside they are a mutant and part organic, that is terrifying. And when you realise that the organic side of them were, were once humanoid, then that's terrifying. And then when you realise they are very much like Nazis, they've got that cold, racist, you know, I want to kill everything thing. You know, I mean, that is the perfect Doctor Who monster because the Doctor is the antithesis. He's the the polar opposite. And you need the Doctor to have that polar opposite to rail against. But on top of that, I think the best Doctor Who monster next to the Daleks is actually Davros because he's the perfect mix of Dalek and human and he is evil through and through and very clever. So he's the perfect foil for the Doctor. Which monster would I like to see come back? Well, I think I'd like to see the Rutans come back in a full-on war with the Sontarans. That would be incredible. And I think that's something that um, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor could really get her teeth into as well. Especially as the Rutans can, you know, turn into anybody. They are shapeshifters. I suppose a bit similar to the Zygons, but uh, you'd have tentacle creatures instead of sucker creatures uh, underneath those people that you love and know. And uh, with the military aspect of the Sontarans, that kind of blunt weapon, I think it would make a really interesting comeback. So bring back the Rutans. My favourite monsters from Doctor Who have to be the Ood. Where do we even start with the Ood? They are constantly bordering that line of helpful friend and terrifying foe, and I think that makes them so interesting and very watchable. I love the Elder Ouds in the episode The Planet of the Ood, and I love their part in that whole story. I think that's the reason why I love anything the Ood are involved in. I'm thinking of getting a cardboard cutout of one to put in the office. A Doctor Who monster has to have a few things to be one of the greats. They have to be scary, in my opinion, at least in attitude if not in looks. But you can't beat a really scary alien from another world chasing after you down a corridor. They have also, I think, have to have a good reason for wanting what they want. Whether that's control over the galaxy or to wipe out the human race, a good reason that everyone can at least understand is the ticket to some fabulous entertainment. I'm loving all the monsters that are finding their way back onto our screens at the moment, uh, my favourite would have to be the Ice Warriors. It may not be that old in comparison to the show, but I would love to see the Family of Blood make an appearance again. I guess it would have to be before they all get locked in various places across time and space, or perhaps distant relations of the Family of Blood, but I found those monsters really truly fascinating. What makes a good Doctor Who monster? And I've been talking about that, mentioning that in these my remarks so far, which are, uh, in a way, I really, I think I'm pretty much agree with Terry Cooper again, which was the aesthetic, that there's something very interesting about how they appear, very um, their outline has a very strong presence. So in a silhouette, if you were to see them in a dark room and then you shine a light on them from behind or something. If you could see the silhouette, can you identify them all, um, immediately? And you can with the Daleks, you can with the Cybermen, you can with the Ice Warriors, you can with the Sontarans, and many of these other races. Certainly the Weeping Angels, or or um, the Selene, or uh, something. another thing from the new series. Um, probably the, even the Adipose, maybe. Um... So very, um, or, or the silence, definitely. Silence are quite good, quite scary. 
um, an outline, an image, uh, uh, a shape, uh, a, uh, a surface, a texture that is very um, identifiable. And as Terry said, some way to reduce them to a couple words. Uh, uh, fascistic or not like a Nazi for the Daleks, or pepper pots, if you want to call, if you don't know about their back history and the, those um, historical um, inspirations um, for the Daleks, you could, people might call them pepper pots. They look a little bit like a salt or a pepper shaker. Um, and in a way, that's a, perhaps an appropriate term, just because uh, you might think of them um, with a little bit of sarcasm, in the sense, oh, they look a little silly. But then, they, if in real life you saw them, but then they would, if you see them, but they, they can very, then very quickly kill you, and they wouldn't at all care if you've been sarcastic to them. Uh, the Cybermen uh, reducing them to survivalist robots, to survivalist uh, cyborgs, um, these hybrid of uh, human and machine. One could argue, if, if a Star Trek reference again, that they are definitely like the. You could argue that they're like the Borg of of Doctor Who, except everyone will say much better. And I agree because, um, um, in the design of the Cybermen, I think the 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 human side is is completely subsumed. It's completely masked. It's it takes a little bit of remembering. Whereas with the Borg, it's quite obvious is quite scary. It's quite obvious, okay, this person was once a human, with the Simon you have to be reminded, and therefore the story has to go out of its way to remind a person, and if it does, through very scary means, and very harrowing, and very haunting means, that this was once a human being, or some type of living person. Um, with the Ice Warriors, that sense of honor, but that sense of just sheer imposition, um, sheer um, sharpness, she, and, and, and and in the case of their aesthetic, the sense that you are often tricked when you're watching an Ice Warrior. Because since they have a helmet like the Cybermen, but with, like, perhaps this will sound a little funny, but like the character of Batman, they have a, um, it's like a mask and not a helmet, in that it's a helmet with a mask on them, that their, their mouth area is exposed. But beca uh, because the mouth is always the same shade of green as their helmet, you're often um, tricked a little bit. You're tricking yourself. You're thinking, is that a, is that a quote unquote, a, an alien, or is, is it a living being, or is it a machine? So you're, there's that. It, they're meshed together, melded together, um, at the same time. So you're often being tricked, and you're often wondering, well, is it real? Is it, is it human? Well, not human, but is it, is it alien? Is it machine? Is it man or machine? Essentially, monster or machine. Machine man or machine monster. It's very, very tricky. I've always. I've always been tricked in that way, trying to remember how much of a machine is this creature, the Ice Warrior. Um, and the Sontarans, well, uh, so you could reduce it to, if it were like, Potato Head. Again, kind of joking about it. Um, but they are quite deadly, and with their armor and their helmet, and then the removal of their helmet, and then the fact that their head almost looks like the helmet, it's a beautiful design. And their sense of war and, and devotion to war. Excuse me, against the... Uh, against the uh, the Rutans. Going back to the Ice Warriors, again, that what makes them good is that the complexity as well, though. Um, of those four races, that I, I'm kind of considering my top, I think the Ice Warriors probably tend to be the most complex because they have not, um, as a race, uh, not always been treated as villains, or portrayed as villains, I should, uh, also. You could say the same thing about the Sontarans, but that has tended to be more recently in the version, um, form of Strax, um, I very much like a lot of the things that Stephen Moffat did with Doctor Who. One thing where I disagree with him, I th uh, not fundamentally so strong, but certainly 
moderately so at least, was his statement that you can't do anything scary with the Sontarans, and therefore, I think that was his reaction to why Sontarans in his era tend eventually just became Strax, and he was a totally comedic character, and his response was, they're too small and too silly looking to make anything of use of them. I disagree, definitely disagree. I can understand, the reason why I don't feel so strongly about it is because I can understand what he's saying, and maybe... I'm sure that if he put his mind to it, he could make them scary, but maybe he just simply, that was not a priority for him. Although, But to be very honest, Moffat has made it clear that there are certain monsters he does not like. He does not. I'm not sure if he likes the Sontarans or he is outright said he's never liked the Ice Warriors, which was why we, I think we're very fortunate we got a couple stories with the Ice Warriors in his era. Otherwise, I don't think that we would have seen, otherwise we wouldn't have seen them even now. Uh, thanks to Mark Gattis, um, who very much loves the Ice Warriors, we were able to see them. And he wrote the stories, the two stories in which they appear. There's a, they have a third cameo appearance in Face the Raven, but even so. Um, but the Ice Warriors have such a complexity to them. That's quite interesting. In that they are sometimes portrayed as, as uh, allies to the Doctor. That's only happened on... It's only been mined on television to really full effect, or at least a good effect, in uh, The Curse of Heldon. In the Troughton episodes, they were straight villains, and in the Monster Peladon, they were once again villains. But again, even there was complexity, because they, since they had established that the Ice Warriors were more peaceful by the time you have the era of the Federation, <laughs> not Star Trek's Federation, but the Federation in, in Curse of Peladon, suddenly if you have them as monsters again, you had to explain it. You have these rogue, breakaway, more warrior sect of um, Ice Warriors. Very interesting. Um, you even have an Ice Warrior companion for the Eighth Doctor in the... Uh, Doctor Magazine, I think, comics, in the, uh, in that point, probably would have been in the late 1990s, I suppose. Sard was his name, S-S-A-R-D. Um, so very interesting, very interesting ways to give complexity to these monsters. That's what also makes, in my opinion, a good Doctor Who monster. Sometimes it takes, it just takes time, and it takes multiple appearances, um, but you are able to achieve that type of an effect. Uh, in giving these monsters a sense of dignity in a strange, macabre way. And of course, um, the complexity of the Cybermen can come out through the fact that they were once humans and such, and so you can explore that through maybe things like the Lone Cybermen. I liked, I will say I very much liked um, how it was portrayed at the beginning of his three-episode arc. I was, I won't lie, I was fairly disappointed with how his arc ended. Um... Um, in the last two episodes. The first episode, I think, was very, very good. Um, and it really makes me wish that we had more of a backstory for him than just a name or something. Um, and a little bit of the sense of how he welcomed the Cybermen. That's quite an interesting idea, and so I think it deserved a back history. His second episode was interesting, but there he's a little more ranting and has his, his ideas of destruction. And then the last episode, I hate to say it, I think he just became... A, even worse than simply a consistently or originally kind of generic monster saying, I'm going to destroy everything, to go from some interesting pathos to simply, I'm going to destroy everything with my 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 big bomb. Uh, that was, I won't lie, that was fairly disappointing, but um, um, and, and that's the thing about complexity, is sometimes it can fail, uh, in that if you introduce something so new to an established idea, and fail may be a strong word, but it can perhaps sometimes go nowhere because you might think some so far out of the box that it's hard to get back into the box to um, 
to maintain the consistency and the continuity of of that box of the and the, the box being a character or a, or concept of, of of a monster race. So failure might be a strong word, but it might be nearly that when the concept is so far away that the only way to maintain the continuity is to then, you know, retract and, and retrench to a, a stereotype or a cliche. Um, one thing I will say that I think actually worked, and it gets a lot of, in terms of complexity for the Daleks, was um, Dalek Sec from the Evolution of the Dalek episodes, the uh, Manhattan episodes of Series 3. That, uh, that was episodes, I've, I think I've mentioned before, had a... Um, Initially, you had quite a strong reaction, a negative reaction among some people, fans, because of probably the, the humanized Dalek uh, in Dalek Sec. But looking back, I think it was a, quite a bold move and allowed you to go outside the box in a way that you could go as far as you wanted because it was a single Dalek who on its own um, decided we have come this far and we have failed as a race. And we will continue to fail if we continue to be exactly as we are. That was a very interesting um, exploration of you've, of a Dalek making decisions that are not based on essentially madness. We've seen Daleks becoming a little more free thinking, but it's almost always because of madness or, or torture and the effects of torture, the effects of isolation, the effects of being without orders. This was a Dalek that could think slightly more for itself as the cult of Skaro, and therefore made the decision look, our creator Davros and well, the emperors that have led us have led us have brought us to this ruin. We must make a change. Let's see what happens if we become more human. Perhaps we can still be Daleks and and survive. And then, of course, that leads to the humanity in within the Dalek. It was quite uh, quite moving, and I very much enjoyed. In fact, quite 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 found inspiring the character of Dalek Sek. That is one case, in my opinion. Whereas the character of Ashad, in my opinion. Uh, started very well, but in my opinion, ended not very well. Uh, Dalek Sek had a wonderful arc and a sad ending, but a, but a dignified ending. Uh, even in chains, saying, "If you destroy all, you will bring destruction upon yourselves." Um, probably falling on deaf ears, but that is a whole generation of the Daleks that's pretty much gone. Um, so, leading. Those ideas of complexity now leading to um, have been are very interesting to explore. So, an image, the outline, their their look, their mo their their um, the intentions and motivations of the monsters, and the complexity. If there's if there's room for growth and complexity, then um, I very much feel that the, those are many of the qualities which make, among others, I'm sure, uh, a successful Doctor Who monster. And finally, the third question is, um, which monster that has not yet reappeared in the new series. Um, uh, do I hope appears uh, soon, or reappears on screen? Um, and I think for me, the number one, there are a few. Um, well, uh, I've listened, of course, to Terry Cooper and to uh, Lee Rawlings, um, who voices Sam Jackson in the final game, and they um, both said, had some very ni nice ideas where I agree. Lee mentioned the Rutans, Terry mentioned the Wirren, and I agree with both. I also think that the um, the Sea Devils, and this is probably the popular choice because this has been I've seen mentioned amongst on many forums and amongst other Doctor Who fans, that the Sea Devils are a race uh, that should reappear. I haven't mentioned them, but I really enjoy the Silurians and the, um, in conjunction with the Sea Devils. Very much enjoy uh, Silurian 
um, and Sea Devil stories. Silurians is one of the first Doctor stories I ever saw, and it quite affected me, and Sea Devils always felt a very scary-looking race. Um, the same idea of that they're monsters that you can't really put away or destroy too well without saying something about yourselves, humans, because they are not, although they're not human, they look like aliens, but they're not aliens. They are native to the planet Earth. So they have a claim to the planet Earth. So like the Silurians, who have made quite a number of appearances in the new series, not too many lately, though. So I think... I will say that I think the Silurians are due for another return, just because they were they were right they were they were rife in appearances. Their appearances were many in the Stephen Moffat years, um, more so the Matt Smith years, I should say. The Matt Smith years they quite, appear quite a lot, and again, just like the Santarans, they in the end kind of got reduced to one person. For the Santarans, it was Strax. For the Silurians, it was Madame Vastra, and that was an interesting trend uh, for Moffat to reduce certain monsters. And I think you could actually say this, at least from the Moffat years, that the Daleks were as well, in the form of Rusty. Uh, granted, he only appeared twice, but compared to the Cy Cybermen, the Daleks appeared very sparsely in the, Matt Smith, um, excuse me, in the Stephen Moffat era. Both Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi only had a couple stories. Matt Smith really only two stories if he were dedicated to the Daleks. And Peter Capaldi... Um, well, they, you know, maybe two stories dedicated to the Daleks also. There were others, but where they were the main thrust of things. Um, so, although the Silurians would, would be, I think, are um, due for a return, at least they have appeared in the new series. The Sea Devils have not. Um, they've appeared in the Doctor Magazine comics in the, um, in the Peter Capaldi era. And I think that Moffat may have been joking, but... Um, uh, the James Corden's character Craig, who appeared twice in the Matt Smith era, in uh, the Lodger and Closing Time, there were some plans um, considered to have him appear a third time during Series Seven, uh, where he, Craig and, and I can't remember his 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 wife, but on their honeymoon they, or vacation they would be on an island somewhere, and then the idea was that Matt Smith would come. Uh, um, uh, uh, what, well, I, I'm not much of a water sports person, but or the name of it, but uh, water gliding into onto the beach, um, being pursued or by uh, sea devils. So that really pricked my ears. So I thought, oh, goodness sake, sea devils could could have appeared maybe in the Matt Smith era. They were certainly mentioned on a couple occasions by the master and the doctor in, in the um, in the Matt in the David Tennant years, um, but. And they made a, an appearance, uh, old video footage in the Jodie Whittaker's era in the Timeless Children, but we have not seen the Sea Devils. Um, and they're probably one of the few monsters. Once the Zygons reappeared, and I love the Zygons too, it's just they have so few appearances compared to some of these others that they um, there's still so much room to grow that you almost have not forget, but they get drowned out by the fact a little bit that they've got all these other monsters that take up all the oxygen oxygen sometimes in the room, so to speak. But I really love the Zygons. But until the Zygons reappeared, um, once they reappeared, um, they were, um, the Sea Devils are now kind of one of the last classic series monsters that have not had a return appearance. Um, and I really thought that they were going to show up this year. There were strong rumors because there were rumors, which turned out to be true, that you had several episodes in series 12 dealing with uh, ecology and the environment. Um, yeah, the, really, um, two really, two certainly very close. Orphan Fifty Five and Praxius, and to perhaps a lesser extent, um, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. But 
certainly something like Praxius. I expected the Sea Devils to appear when they didn't. Uh, I won't lie, I was quite disappointed. Um, I don't go into a uh, Doctor episode or a or a, a full series of Doctor Who saying I really want the Sea Devils to appear, but but more lately that in a certain extent that is this is the case because the new series has been around now for 15 years. I mean, anyways, more like 16 years because it's been in production. Actually, even longer. But in any case, the new series is actually, when you really think about it, it's it's getting a little closer to 20 years since the new series came back to some form of production. We're talking about back to 2003. It's about 17 years. And in that time, the Sea Devils have not returned. Um, and add to that the fact that the last time that we saw the Sea Devils at all on screen in Doctor Who was Warriors of the Deep, a broadcast in 1984, filmed in 1983. So it's getting, it's, that's about 30, you know, take your pick, but a little more than 35 years ago, 36 years ago. So it's been a while since the Sea Devils have appeared on screen. And to be very fair, when it, you pair them with their brother race, the Silurians, they definitely get a little bit of the short end of the stick because the Silurians have appeared much more often in the spin-off material, such as the books and the audios. Um... So, he, honestly, yes, the Sea Devils are starting to become kind of the unsung villains of, of Doctor Who, classic monsters that people remember. A lot of people will remember the Sea Devils, yet we have not seen them, and very rarely hear them in the audios. I think they've appeared once in uh, Bernice Summerfield um, spin-off audio, I think of the Poison Seas. Uh, again, back in 2003, <laughs> funny enough, so right when the new series was getting started. But we haven't seen them in the... I don't think we've seen them in an audio since. Uh, they hadn't appeared in an audio before then. So they're still quite a sparsely featured race. You can point to only a couple stories in which they appear. So, as you can tell by the length of my response, I definitely feel that it's the Sea Devils that should reappear in Doctor Who. And I really think that they uh, deserve a, re uh, a real good story. Um, and in my opinion, with the themes of Series 12, you know, the, of the ecology and such, it really should have been this year. It really should have been this year, because because if it were to reappear next series in a story about ecology, it might feel a little redundant, or a little um, late, essentially. Like, well, you could have, why didn't we get this before? There would be perhaps a little sense of, oh, okay, better late than never, maybe, but, you know, it might have fit a little bit better in the thematics of, of Series 12. Um, but yes, yeah, so th those are those are my thoughts on the monsters of Doctor Who, and um, my favorite monsters, what makes a good Doctor Who monster, and which monsters do I hope reappear. I should say this, since I started this by talking about uh, monsters in the broader sense, including individual villains, like the, the Master and such, one character that I definitely hope could return, I'm going to return to that, I'm going to broaden that uh, definition for my Last episode, um, last question, uh, to close off my remarks and say that I really hope that one character that could return is the Valayard, uh, as a monster with, under the definition of an uh, individual villain. Um, I've always had an interest in the Valayard. People probably know this if they know that I wrote the novel Times Champion and such. Um, and I will say that, um, one big reason why I think the Valayard should return is I really think that, number one, because it's time. Uh, as stated back in the Trial of a Time, when the Master revealed the Valayard's nature, he said the Valayard came from somewhere between the Doctor's twelfth and final incarnation. Well, 
regardless of whatever you think about the revelations at the time as children, up until that episode, um, it's been con- generally con- people were generally considering the Doctor's incarnations to be those numbers, and and therefore people doing the math were saying, okay, well, Peter Capaldi or now Jodie Whittaker certainly it's kind of time for the Valleyard. Uh, and therefore, I would say that although nothing is ever required, I think I feel this is one of those few times for a showrunner, certainly Chris Chipnall, that it, in my opinion, it to do deal, due diligence to the continuity and the history of Doctor Who, that it, this is one of those few times where I think it is incumbent upon him to feature the Valleyard, um, different from the, his predecessors Moffat and Davis. He's dealing with the Thirteenth Doctor, and this is. What people have been, not many, but people that care and people that remember. This is something people have been not necessarily waiting for with bated breath, but, or holding their breath, you know, oh my gosh, is the Valley are going to return? But this has been something that people have been waiting for. Me too, in the sense of, well, we'll it's, now, it's kind of now or never, or this is as good a time as ever. So I really hope that the Valleyard makes a return appearance. Um, and also because, not just the time, but the... Um, the chance for finally exploring and revealing what the Valleyard is. The Valleyard is a little bit like the Guardians for me in Doctor Who. Uh, I've mentioned this before, that the Guardians, I, I enjoy the character of the Guardians, this, this includes things like the Toy Maker and such, but things of that ilk, which is powerful singular beings, that in the context and the cosmology of Doctor Who don't exactly make sense. Uh, in that we don't Things tend to reduce to if you're a villain or if you're a monster. It tends even things like the boneless from Flatline. We don't know much about them, but the whole idea is maybe they're coming from another dimension, a, a, a one dimension, a single dimensional plane. I like to think that they're time lords. I tend to think that a lot of things are time lords, but I like to think that those are maybe time lords trying to escape the pocket dimension of Gallifrey. And that actually, in my opinion, would make a good sense. But in any case, um, the, even there, with such a little bit of information. You have a sense that if someone were to say, "What are the boneless?" Oh, they're they're aliens or some type of aliens from another dim- from us a, a different dimensional plane. The guardians, we don't know what they are. They just appear. They seem to have a lot of power, um, and yet, are they an alien race? Are they spirits? Are they computers? Are they are they higher plane of uh, plane of consciousness? What are they? We don't know. We probably won't know because, being very honest, they although as interesting as they are, they don't tend to fit, in my opinion, within the cosmology of Doctor Who, Russell T. Davis has said pretty much, he has said the same thing. Um, in one interview about the Sarah Jane Adventures, people wondering if the shopkeeper was a, a guardian. He outright said, no. No, he's not one of the guardians. And he said, I'm not really sure how the guardians fit into the cosmology of Doctor Who, or whether or not they even should. Which is probably a polite way of saying I wouldn't, I don't want to use the guardians because I'm not fond of them. At least I don't understand them. And to be fair, I agree with him in that they feel like they come from another television series. That's maybe one answer of what makes maybe sometimes a villain not work. I'm not saying the, the Guardians by nature don't work, including the Toy Maker as such, but they are, um, they don't have a clear definition of what they are. And therefore, Doctor Who, in my opinion, they don't really fit with Doctor Who too well because Doctor Who tends to explain your monsters, explain your villains, say what they are. They are something from this alien race or they're this being from this planet, or this dimension, or this whatever, but just having aliens just show up, or beings show up, and essentially by fiat say, I'm this ultimate power, and then disappear, without, what are you? Not even a question of what are these things. 
that bugs me a little bit. It makes me think... I would say of all, many of the things in Doctor Who, the Guardians are things that I would like to kind of pin down and say, well, where do you come from? What are you? And that's why I say that they're Time Lords. Time Lords from the Dark Times. Uh, because they look like Time Lords, and they seem to have powers that certain few Time Lords that we have seen throughout the series, including the audios, from that era. They have very similar powers. Therefore, I think, why not? Um, and that gives them in a catch-all way a fit into the cosmology. But I mentioned those to give my to give a little background of my feelings of the Valayard, and that in the Doctor sense, he's much like that, which is, what is he? If he's not one of the Doctors, and yet he just appeared out of nowhere from the, the future, and we don't know how he got there, how long he's been, quote-unquote, here in the past, and where is he going because he survived the events of the Trial of a Time Lord, that really bugs me. I want, and I would like to know if there's a... A future for the Valayard. Big Finish have expanded and expounded upon the Valayard, but I, even there, I've I've always been a little irritated in not in that they feature the Valayard, but that they have seemed to keep hinting at different possibilities of ex, um, origins uh, and explanations for the Valayard. One that he was created by the Final Doctor as kind of an experiment to extend his lifetime, or that he was created by. Black Ops technology, Time Lord Black Ops technology, another that he was, he's a breakaway from the Doctor's final regeneration. And those explanations are not necessarily mutually exclusive. But because we keep getting different explanations through just coy hints and, 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 and glimpses, and then they could be somewhat contradicted, it makes you feel that Big Finish probably is not really in their remit or in their desires necessarily to um, reveal the origins of the Valayard. Because by now it might be almost the mystery is almost part of the fun. But like I said, now we are at a point in Doctor Who history where it might be. I think it is the correct time to ex- reveal the mystery. Um, because not every mystery needs to be a mystery forever. So I definitely would like to see the Valayard return again. Um, would he be played by Michael Jaston? Uh, I would like. I would love it if, if at least Michael Jaston could reappear as the Valayard. I recognize that he's he's still acting and such, and still um, uh, um, appearing as the Valayard in the audios. He's, 80, um, he's 85 now, or at least he will be later this year. Um, that, does, that shouldn't stop him. But um, I, I simply say that to, to say that, you know, he, he could still do it, but I could, I could understand why uh, the, the idea could be to, that a recast would be not necessary, but perhaps very likely. Um, I definitely think that he to, that he should. <laughs> if it were me, I would. I, I, well, I, if it were me prior to Jodie Whittaker, I would say well, it has to be a male because the character was male. But now that we have a male master again and a female doctor, if she want, I would say the Valayard to reflect. The Doctor now, just as likely, could be a, a, a female. A female version of the Valayard could be interesting. I suspect that we'll have a male version of the Valayard, though, because it would be a, another just contrast between the Doctor and a dark side. But again, I don't think the Doctor really has a dark side, so I, I definitely think the Valayard is something else. I know. And it comes down to this. Who knows what the Valayard is? I know. Or at least I have my ideas. Um, um, in the context of Time's Champion. Which is the only time that I think that someone has, well, I have, um, explicitly revealed what the Valayard is. So I hope to um, 
bring that to the public one more uh, again sometime soon. Well, in any case, I've uh, spo- uh, enjoyed speaking about the Doctor Monsters and adding a little bit more than I than I expected. Um, but um, I will uh, sign off now and uh, happy um, happy to have spoken to the audience again about the final game and and my personal thoughts about Doctor Who. And I wish everyone a uh, wonderful uh, listening to this installment of the Final Game Confidential. Uh, thank you so much and enjoy. Hello, I'm Terry Cooper and I play the Master in the Final Game. My favourite monsters from Doctor Who of all time are the Cybermen. I've always really liked them. I think my earliest memory of the Cybermen may have been the invasion, but definitely Revenge of the Cybermen, and those are my favourite looking Cybermen. We've seen them recently, and uh, they're looking a lot better than they were. I wasn't too crazy about the Cybus Cybermen, but I did like the Peter Capaldi uh, 10th Planet style Cybermen, which were slightly updated, but uh, in a good way. That was great. What makes a good Doctor Who monster... Well, I think a good monster needs to be, at least for me, aesthetically interesting. Um, The Daleks are completely unique. Um, You'd think that something designed in 1963 would have dated, you know, aside from having a a suction cup toilet plunger as an appendage, you think that uh, that kind of thing would have dated. But for some reason, um, it's probably because they were so well received at the time and the whole Dalek mania thing kicked off that they were sort of taken into the public zeitgeist and as a result you know uh, they never seemed to date it everyone seemed to like them also the uh, the thing that makes a good Doctor Who monster is a very clear definition of what they are it can be summed up in a couple of words so if you think of Daleks most people would think Nazis um, and you know they scream and shout and they are basically hate-filled tanks. Um, when you think of Sontarans, they're the kind of the Klingons of the Doctor Who universe. They're warriors, and they're all about you know war and the glory of uh, fighting. Cybermen. A lot of people think of them as robots, but their thing is survival and basically taking over anyone they come across. So I think a good Doctor Who monster needs to look really interesting and have a clearly defined kind of uh, ethos. So, you know, whether it's their their motivation or their the way they speak or the way they, uh, they move, it's that kind of thing. Until recently, we hadn't seen the Cybermen for a while, and they made an appearance in the recent uh, Jodie Whittaker story, which was uh, a nice return. They looked a lot better. I wasn't sure about the uh, spikes on the shoulders and arms. It made them look a little bit 1970s uh, Gene Simmons kiss outfit. I'm not sure what the spikes were in aid of, but other than that, they look really good. I'm trying to think what would be good to, to come back that we haven't seen for a while. I mean, I like the Sontarans, um, but I would like to see the Sontarans look more like they did in the Pertwee and Tom Baker era, because the modern Sontarans... They're dressed in this sort of powder blue rubber outfits, and they're very, you know, they're very well done, but their faces should have horrible little um, whiskers sticking out of them and dark patches like links, and um, they should look a lot rougher and scarier 
and uh, very shiny and smooth as they kind of are at the moment so that might be interesting to see some more Sontarans um, as for something that's never been seen in the new series goodness me um, I don't know maybe something like the Wurren I remember that scaring me a lot as a kid um, I think uh, I mean I haven't seen it for a long long time um, I would probably laugh at the you know the fiberglass costume being uh, shifted around by somebody inside it but um, I think if the Wurren were done nowadays, it would be mostly CGI and uh, they could become quite terrifying, really. So that might be interesting. Cool. I'm just going to go ahead and start and we can roll with that. So uh, what are your favorite monsters from Doctor Who? <laughs> that is a very, very good question with a lot of different potential answers. Um, I'm going to put aside the big two. The Daleks and the Cybermen, because I feel like it's those are the ones that everyone's going to say, and it's a bit more interesting without those two in the mix. So, aside from them, I'd say that some of my all-time favorite Doctor Who monsters are, oh, let's see, uh, Mandrills from Nightmare Beaten utterly terrified me as a kid. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of the Hemovores from The Curse of Fenric. I think they're a great concept, some of the best costumes in all of all of the classic era of Doctor Who. Um, I really, really like the Reapers as well from Father's Day. Those, those are something else. Um, yeah. I'm also really partial to a good Auton. I think the concept of the Autons is uh, fantastic. It's it's interesting because I feel like they they almost work best in their setting in the 1970s when they were conceived, just because of how new plastics were. Um, though they're they're ever more relevant today, um, but they they have a little bit less of that. Wow, this is to do with something new and universal, because we're all just so so familiar with with plastics at this point. But beyond that, I think I think the concept of sort of ancient eldritch being that takes on any form it needs that that consists of a hive consciousness that can branch off from itself um that's that's terrifying and it's amazing and it's fascinating and um it's it's not something that's actually been explored that much outside of a lot of extended media and i really wish we'd do that one day um final final enemy that i'm, I'm really fond of the great intelligence <laughs> um I absolutely love the concept of the Great Intelligence, kind of for the same reasons that I, I, I like the Autons and, and the Nesting Intelligence, just because of how utterly unknowable it is at its core, how it's something that comes from outside of our knowledge, outside of our sphere of existence, and it's, it's malicious. It's not a first contact with something utterly unknown that's gonna, gonna bring you flowers and say, hello, we're the new neighbors. It's something that wants to kill you and wants to take your planet and wants to annihilate every last trace of you. And it does it in terrifying ways by creating robotic furred creatures that either will tell you or tear you apart with their hands or will cover you in a deadly web-like substance. Um, or, of course, create blank-faced people in top hats that can steal your identities if it wants. It's terrifying. I love it for that. So, uh, what makes a good Doctor Who monster? That's a that's another really good question, and I think 
the answer to that is going to vary from person to person based on what terrifies and interests them the most. Because I think at its core, a good Doctor Who monster is a monster that taps into some of the deepest fears that we have as people, and also some of our most, um, how do I say that? Some of the things that we are most curious about as a species. Because a lot of the things that end up sticking with you are the things that either scare you the most or interest you the most. So a good Doctor Who monster will take something and will make you afraid of it or will make you interested to know more about where it came from. So for me, um, some of the things that I'm most afraid of and most interested by are uh, animalistic things, uncontrollable creatures that will tear you apart or, or hunt you down or, or do whatever. Um, I'm also terrified of things that make you sort of lose control of who you are, transform you from a human into something totally different. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's where my, my love of the mandrels comes from. Because I adore Nightmare of Eden as a story and as a concept. The idea that you're trapped on board a spaceship with a team of slavering alien monsters with big teeth and, and large claws that are, are going to destroy you if they get anywhere near you is just utterly horrifying. You know, it's, it's one thing if you encounter a bear in the jungle or, or in the forest, and it's entirely another thing if you're stuck in a boat with one because you have a very, very limited area in which to run. Um, I love like the hemivores as well for kind of the same same reason um, that they're they're just so uncontrollable. They're they're a force of nature, a uh, force of Fenric, really. If you want to be if you want to be specific, um, but also you can tell that they once were human. They were people that have been corrupted and have been made into something entirely different by an outside force. They've they've lost control of themselves and lost their own humanity in the process. Um, in terms of what interests me, that's where things like the Great Intelligence come in, where it's it's a concept that you can never get a good answer to because it comes from outside of our universe. All we know about it is what it tells us, and that's not much. We know what it can do. We know what it wants. We don't really know where it came from or how it exists. You know, even in The Snowman, for example, there's still a lot of ambiguity about where it initially came from before it met met um, Richard E. Grant's character. I, th I think Dr. Simeon? That's been a long time since I've seen that one. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity there, which opens up a lot of questions and um, just interests me to no end. Uh, so the final question, which monster is not seen for a while are you hopeful will make a future return to the TV series? So my answer to this is probably going to be a little bit controversial. There honestly aren't that many monsters or foes that I would like to see make a return to TV. And it's not because I don't love them, but it's because I think uh, Doctor Who at its heart is something that is best when it's exploring new territory and when it's creating new monsters and new situations and tapping into new fears that are maybe a bit more prescient and present than we had back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Or, honestly, even in the early 2000s, we have an entirely different world now than we did then. Um, so we, we have uh, whole generations now growing up with a different set of fears than their forebears would have had. 
And that's that's new ground for Doctor Who to take. New monsters that can can tap into those fears, uh, new scenarios that can interest these uh, this this new generation and so forth. So, I'm I'm much more interested in seeing what new terrors will face than in wanting any particular uh, old monster to make a return appearance. Well, hello again to Mark McManus and the Trap One podcast audience. Uh, this is Chris McKeon. It's 11.46 p.m., uh, what we will call Mountain Daylight Time on Saturday, the 4th of April, uh, 2020. So I'm happy because this day is the day that um, is the release of Part 4 of the final game. And it's about six months after Part 3 was released. Uh, the first three parts were released pretty quickly on our intended schedule. Well, there's been a six-month wait because of well, various things in, in life. Nothing nothing major, but mainly in um, um, the life of our wonderful, my wonderful sound designer, Gareth Severn. Uh, just moving house and stuff. Nothing nothing secret or, or terribly personal. Just simply moving house so where he lives in uh, on the island of Cyprus. And um, and that took a while, um, the end, the last few months of the last year. And so um, we've had a little bit of a wait until this time, but it's been a very good wait because Part 4 is an excellent episode. I listened to it last night, uh, just before its official release, and it was really, really good to hear. Um, with the release, of course... Um, it's time again, or at least prepare, I'm preparing. It hasn't been released yet, of course, but uh, for the final game, Confidential Part 4, as part of the Trap 1 podcast, my thoughts and um, impressions and, and uh, motivations behind the uh, scripting and the, of, and the uh, creation of Part 4 of this story. So, um, Part 4 of the final game, even when I wrote it, and certainly um, at its uh, design stage, is a much shorter installment than uh, in comparison to the previous three. And it, was, uh, it wasn't exactly designed right at the start, like, oh, this will be a shorter episode. But as I wrote it, I realized that this, um, very early in the writing process, would probably be a, a shorter episode because... It is in itself a transitional episode, um, transitional in many ways in terms of setting and for the characters and such, um, and for the plot certainly. Um, in, at a kind of a, at a high level, the transitional elements of the story is from traditional to radical. Uh, traditional uh, meaning, in terms of, of Doctor Who storyline, certainly a unit era storyline. The first three episodes of this story. Um, are in a very typical and usual and very comfortable and normal, um, fairly normal, at least, circumstances of a, of a Doctor Who story in the unit era, which is a story set on Earth in the, the, the present day, then present day, specifically um, the summer of 1975, but in any case, something set in, the, in that era, and uh, with unit, and the master, of course, the Delgado master, and facing some type of uh, alien threat. Um, I suppose the inclusion of characters like uh, Liz Shaw 
is a, is not terribly traditional for a, a Pertwee episode of that time, but it is uh, fairly traditional um, or fairly common, if traditional is common in, in this case. It is fairly common to see such things happen in Doctor Who, in past eras of Doctor the, the, um, of the Doctor, Doctor's earlier incarnations, as produced uh, now by Big Finish or by the um, whoever right now. I think maybe it's IDW and perhaps it's Titan. I have have to keep track of whoever hold, holds the license to do Doctor Who comics. It's probably Titan now. In any case, you will often see now um, because you have so many years and so much nostalgia to to mine and to revisit. Um, the first wave of these stories, which is when they were on television being produced, you might simply have the characters of a particular era. In this case, season 11 would have the third Doctor and Sarah Jane. You wouldn't have had on screen, I imagine, had the story been made in 1974, you wouldn't have had Liz Shaw appear as she does in my story, but you very likely would have her appear um, in such a story now, um, if, it were, if it were made now and set back then. Uh, for example, the... Um, the, oh, what's it called? I think it's The Forgotten, uh, part of the 50, uh, comic book series from the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, where the Doctor's companions across all his incarnations are being kidnapped. In the third Doctor segment of the story, you have a story set in season 11 where the third Doctor uh, is um, with Sarah Jane Smith, but Liz Shaw shows up, and the Brigadier is in that story also. And so... I simply mention this to say that, yes, in a traditional sense, Liz Shaw um, wouldn't have appeared in 1974, almost certainly not, but uh, she very easily, in the traditional sense for a modern Doctor Who audience, uh, revisiting an earlier Pertwee-era story, would feature in such, a, such an event as this, or she could at least, it wouldn't seem out of place. Incidentally, um, the fact that Liz Shaw and Sarah Jane Smith have already met in the final game was a conscious decision on my part being aware of the fact that there's a comic story where Liz and Sarah Jane have, uh, meet. And from my perspective, all Doctor Who is canon. Uh, not all things easily fit together, but that's part of the fun, from my perspective as a fan, to fit the, um, the elements together into uh, a head canon of sorts. As some people say, this is how things work in their head. Head canon, for me, is quite important. Um, and so... Um, the first three episodes of the final game are very traditional. Um, you likely would have seen something like this, no matter what the story was, you would have likely seen something like this if it was set on Earth. If not, you might have seen something like Frontier in Space or Colony in Space or The Mutants. Those are probably um, the three big uh, Pertwee-era television stories that feature stories set in the future. A, um, alien worlds with humans, of course, often will be a very it's a very human era, as all Doctor Who is, but it's it's often tied to an Earth Empire, so to speak. Well, part uh, part four is transitional. In that, um, after the conclusion of part three of the final game, um, you have a situation where the Master has linked the Doctor's TARDIS to a Dalek transmat device, and so they've created a temporal transmat. And that uh, situation has um, started to create a time storm around planet Earth, um, drawing or, and changing, corrupting the energy of Liz Shaw's um, SSS, space, secu space security system, um, force field. 
generated by uh, government satellites and such. So once the Doctor has um, entered the TARDIS and tried to stop the creation of this time storm, at the very beginning of the episode, by the time this uh, confidential is released, I'm sure that a lot of people will have heard it. So, a lot of people have heard it already, thankfully, I'm very grateful, but um, hopefully more will have heard it by then. The opening, um, after the reprise of the previous episode, the opening scene, you'll notice there's a sound, a strange sound that, um, for, for aware listeners, sounds very much like how the sound effects that uh, appear in the television story Inferno. Part one, when the Doctor, Third Doctor, of course, falls between um, the, the parallel timelines, the parallel Earths. That was intentional. That's completely intentional. Um, to showcase some type of transition. I don't have to say quite exactly what it is, because it's not exactly... Well, it is, it is to a certain extent explained in part four, but all the details won't be explained later until the later episodes, so I won't say it too much. But there is a sense of traveling between time, uh, but not exactly a continuous time. And so, um, the, the Doctor and his uh, friends, um, once, once the Doctor is still awake, but um, the Doctor's friends wake up in this strange new time. It might be a moment later, it might be a while later. Um, but it's, it would be as if, I wanted to liken it to well, I'm trying to draw an example from Doctor Who. What, what was I thinking? And was I using anything? Um, in a, in, I recall that in a small, strange way, it was what I was drawing from in terms of maybe a cultural, uh, pop culture, of, of something of, of that time, although it was a little earlier, uh, I was drawing upon a little bit of Planet of the Apes, which is some of my favorite films, just in the sense of tra um, the idea of a traveler in t um, through time. I'm thinking of Charlton Heston's character, um, uh, George Taylor, who, um, it's a different situation. He travels in an in a, in a, in a American spacecraft with some other people, and other astronauts. He's an astronaut, essentially, a rather misanthropic man. Um... It's a little bit of an element of the third Doctor, I suppose, but third Doctor is if you were ex extremely pessimistic and, and un unpleasant of a person. with A man without faith, essentially. And the third Doctor is definitely a man with faith. But in any case, a man that travels through time into um, a future that um, is very different from the world in which where he left. Yet there are certain similarities, such as apes and such. And um, apes that have become very advanced and they rule this planet. And of course, the thought throughout the film is that he's traveled to another planet in another solar system, but in fact, it's simply a future Earth. Um, originally thought to be the year 3978, later retconned to be 3955 and such. I'm not sure why in the second film and onwards. But, and I think later retconned still, and I think the later uh, television series, which would have been probably in production around the time of the end of um, the Pertwee era, with, of course, Planet of the Apes was released in 1970, excuse me, 1968. So completely different era in Doctor Who, the, the Troughton years. It's probably being filmed in 1967. In some form of production, 1966, uh, Screen Test, of course, which featured Edward G. Robinson as Dr. Zaius, who was not Dr. Zaius in the first two films, but in any case, um, 
Charlton Heston, of course, had worked with um, Edward G. Robinson prior in the uh, film The Ten Commandments, which as of today I believe is uh, uh, airing as it usually does on uh, television here in America. It's one of my favorite films. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, and so, of course, um, that was a nice little pairing, just a little trivia. And, of course, the third time that those two actors, Heston and Robinson, met was in the film, the classic film Soylent Green. So they actually worked three times together, two films, but in between, in the interim, a screen test, which also featured jo James Brolin, the father of actor Josh Brolin, the Thanos of the uh, Marvel um, films. Uh, James Brolin played uh, what would become Cornelius. So interesting that you had well-known and actually quite established actors in those scenes that were, in a way, placeholders, pilot, essentially, kind of almost the equivalent of a mini-pilot to a later film. But I mention all this uh, just to s give you a sense of, of a man out of time and a transitional period in which things are slowly revealed. Um, this was definitely what I was thinking in crafting part four was a, a Planet of the Apes style event, which is someone that's taken from their own time um, by choice, just as Taylor decides to go into the future on, that ro on the rocket ship and then... Um, the third doctor chooses to enter his TARDIS and disrupt the time storm. And uh, the TARDIS is, it, it's, um, and I, it's essentially the, the HADS, um, maybe some form of something related to the HADS system, pulls the TARDIS free of time and it brings everyone in, in the local vicinity forward in time or to some point in history. Um, but I wanted to, this episode to be in a small way, very much reminiscent of the first plan of the Apes film, and that once they land and crash land in this time, everyone's there, they're aware of who they are. But slowly, layer by layer, event by event, a little more is revealed, and what seems like some familiar place becomes a little less familiar, and yet also more familiar, more eerie, more surreal, more uncertain as things uh, appear. And of course, in this case, in the, um, the case of the final game, part four, what you have the Doctor and his friends, they wake up. They're in the same place that they were, the Dalek, um, the command deck of this, uh, of this, of this um, scout Dalek saucer. But uh, they're the only ones there. The Master's gone. Prime Minister Thorpe is gone. Thorpe's guards are gone, you know, being led by Sam Jackson, of course. Um, and, and, of course, we hear Sam Jackson in the reprise in Part 3, but we, he does not appear in, in the proper Part 4. Apparently he's been killed along with the rest of um, uh, Thorpe's guards. And like I say, the first thing you discover that something has changed is it's one thing that's subtle. First, the first thing that's subtle that I liked from, um, and this was very much down to um, uh, Gareth's sound design, was in the background, at least in my ears, you can hear um, the, 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 the same communication sounds, the, 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 the machinery sounds of the Dalek ship, of course, its uh, heartbeat has uh, has ceased. The the very familiar the pulse the pulsation of, of Dalek machinery that has ceased. And um, but still, some background machinery is still a little active. But you also it sounds like you hear a little bit of smoke and fire. So the machine is damaged. So perhaps in my mind's eye, the the, the what would have been a brightly lit um, Dalek ship is now dark, darker at least maybe flickering lights or, or lower lights, maybe lights rising a little bit and falling. And then the doctor discovers that outside, uh, Thorpe's men, the guards, the um, 
government guards are all dead. And um, they're wondering, how are they dead? Because there's no sign of blood or injuries to the bodies, and yet they're, these men are dead. And there's a, their faces are, are contorted and, and in pain. It looks like they, were dying, they died of fear or pain of some type. And um, uh, Liz, with the help of Benton, uh, checks one of the men by removing his body armor. Now, this scene, this was a deliberate little callback to um, Remembrance of the Daleks. Uh, when the seventh doctor is checking just by feeling the bodies, the torsos of some of this of the of the British uh, soldier who's um, under Captain Gilmore's uh, command, who's shot by a Dalek weaponry, and the doctor. Uh, I remember the first time I ever watched this episode being fascinated what the doctor was doing, but he just reaches under his shirt or, or something and feels around. He says, "Ah, oh, massive internal displacement. Displacement." What says Gilmore? Says his insides are scrambled. Um, and so. I really wanted to prefigure this, and, but of course, from our perspective, call back to that episode by having Liz check, you know, essentially feel under the man's clothing, at least remove them, this guard's body armor, and then feel. And she says, Doctor, this doesn't make any sense. That, you know, they're internal organs. And then, of course, the third doctor, all, just like the seventh doctor, knows what this means. That um, a projected energy weapon, as the seventh doctor said, in remembrance of the Daleks, uh, killed these men. And so, of course, that spurs the Doctor to leave and everyone to um, escape from the, um, the saucer, and then they escape. And wonderful kudos to Gareth for, um, for creating the suspense by when you open the door and then the others, probably Sarah Jane and some of the other companions, they see first she is the one who reacts and says, what happened? The Doctor looks outside, of course, and you, you hear... Um, you hear... Uh, some of it is the silence, and there's not... There's not blazing storms or anything, but it's just this, what you hear is just this sense of total devastation, total destruction. The, a dead world, essentially a dead earth. The world was dying, but now it's dead. Um, and there's a wonderful moment, um, how, was, how Tony Filer plays it as the brigadier. When they go to the caravan and, and it's now rusted and the windows have turned to powder and such, um, and all the men are dead, and it's very well done. Wonderful performance by Tony. But of course, Bessie survived, and she's made of sterner stuff, so she's not rusted. And and again, this is a, there's one layer here. There's a, a new world, and yet it's familiar. It's still Earth, and yet it's very different. And then there, as they pile into Bessie and are about to leave, suddenly there's this frightening moment, and made me jump a little bit hearing it. It's just this growl, this creature growling. Again, um, a bit of a callback, or not a, a little bit of an homage to you, Planet of the, Planet of the Apes, in that it's an ape-like sound. And, of course, they quickly discover, uh, during escape, they nearly crash into a fallen tree, which, um, in my mind, uh, the intention was that this falling tree was pushed over by the Ogrons. That doesn't say so in the story. It doesn't have to be. Because on screen, I, my feeling was I didn't have to expel out, because on screen, what I'm sure would have happened, you would have seen the tree fallen over, and, of course, it's dark. In my mind, it's nighttime, perpetual night. Um, and the, you see the tree fall over, and then this creature would emerge and it's an ogron and, and the ogron of course you know again a little mirroring or a sh shadow connection to planet of the apes and that you have it's now planet of apes in a way and that you have ogrons all over the place and again wonderful kudos to james hart who voices not only the daleks in the story but the ogrons um at least one ogron maybe two um 
wonderful job. Excellent, excellent work. And excellent work, um, sound design by Gareth to add the, the very ape growls and such. Very scary, very scary. I can't really remember uh, the Ogrons growling um, like that ever on screen. Of course, we only see them in two stories in the original series, but that's not a that's not a deterrent to add something. And so I'm very grateful that Gareth, Gareth added something. And you should, in my opinion, you have to add some sounds. I talked about this in the last confidential um, installment that Daleks of the Pertwee years you wouldn't have heard. You know the 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 motor, the 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 whirs of the motors of the uh, of the Daleks, but since it's an audio adventure, you have to hear something. Now, in the new series, you hear those motors. Big Finish have retroactively included those motor sounds into the um, the Dalek uh, stories. Um, and it's a good way to sh create an atmosphere, an audio atmosphere, part of the audio soundscape of the story by giving the Daleks a definite sound presence. Um, and so the same thing happens here. Of course, with Ogrons they are not machines, or at least they're not cybernetic or in any way, and so they, at least as far as we know. Um, so you, it wouldn't make sense to give them a, a mechanical sound of any type, um, but it would, it definitely makes sense to give them a growl, a real, a kind of a, a, a very raw, imposing, intimidating, and frightening sound, a, an audio presence, so it's excellent. And, um, and again, wonderful sound design by Gareth, you know, giving the sound as if the, conveying the sound as if the, the Ogron is lifting Bessie, which he is. He's very strong. I, I wanted to give it a moment. When you have this group together, you know, the doctor and everybody, and the unit team, in a team like this, everyone has a little bit of a role. The doctor, of course, is, can do everything, but, you know, delegates often to others. <laughs> the brigadier is, is, the, um, is the strategist. Mike Yates is the... Maybe the intellectual, in the certain in the the intellectual um, um, military man. Uh, Benton is the brawn. He's very strong. You never, in my, you never exactly see him, but I, in my mind, in my picture, that that Benton is probably someone in peak physical condition. They all are. You know, the the, the unit men would have to be in, in good shape. But I imagine that Benton is um, is is for a regular person, an exceptionally strong man. And so, um, because of his height and his size and such, uh, since John Levine was originally a Doctor Who monster, he was a Yeti and a Cyberman. Oh, well, he was a Cyberman first, and then did a Yeti, and then was a Cyberman again. Um, he um, would have to be, therefore, Benton, as you see in those early episodes, he's a quite a, a, an imposing size man, an intimidating, intimidating size. So I imagine he's a very strong, peak physical man that could really defend himself in a situation. A gentle man, but very, very physically powerful. And so I wanted to convey the sense of, you have someone that's very strong on your team. Okay, he's going to fight the Ogron. He says, I'm going to tackle him. But of course, the doctor says, no, don't. Even with, and he gives, he gives respect to Ben. He says, you have great strength. But this, this Ogron could crush your, ha your head with one hand. It's a little bit like, um, that was a callback to Jamie in The Two Doctors, when he um, wants to uh, tackle Shockeye, the Andrigam. And the doctor says, it's the sixth doctor, of course, says, no, Jamie, he, you know, he's an Andrigam. He could, he could break, <laughs> he could break us both with one, with on one arm or something. I have to remember the exact quote. But that sense of as strong as a human is and as brave as a person is, you have to be smart because brawn is only, is only as strong as it's, as, as it's might, but up against someone that also has brawn, but greater brawn, you know, strength, 
strength will overpower weakness, physically at least. But it can always overpower intelligence. So you have the balance of people that can all give different things. Um, but of course, the the person that saves the day, of course, will be the doctor because he uh, <laughs> he. Um, I had thought a little bit should the doctor do a fight scene with the no ground, but I thought. I want to keep the pace moving because it's not a very fa long story. It's a transitional one. So everything about this is transition from going from point to point, revealing things. It's not simply set piece to set piece, but event to event that reveals more of the situation. So I felt that a fight sequence would be fun even on audio. Uh, but I felt that a more appropriate way to move the action would simply be to, for the doc that the doctor should use his mind, especially when he's just told Benton that um, phys a physical fight against an Ogron won't be a good idea. And so, as a callback to the Ambassadors of Death, uh, the Doctor uses, um, as, Liz, as Liz knows, and she would know this because this comes from one of her stories, the uh, Bessie's anti-theft uh, device. The one difference being that in the Ambassadors of Death, when the Doctor uses it on General Carrington and his, um, and his associate, this other, this other man, whom I don't think he's ever given a name on screen, perhaps in the credits, but um, the Doctor says, oh, my car is broken down, and so he has the two men that are trying to push the car, but the Doctor, once their hands are in contact with the with the Bessie, the Doctor uses the anti-theft device, and it, uh, and it creates some type of field, and uh, some type of um, um, constriction field that keeps Carrington and his, and his man stuck to the car. Of course, it must burn out because they leave. This is a, the same idea, except in a reverse, in that it, it's a repulsor field, and the Doctor says, I've developed it over the years. So a nice little chance to um, bookend Bessie's abilities, so to speak, of uh, of, of protection, self-protection. Um, but then, of course, after the requisite moment to explain what the Ogrons are, um, uh, this plot moves along. Now, I should take a moment before I continue to say why I decided to include the Ogrons. I've mentioned Planet of the Apes, but but that's, that's an effect. That's a thematic, uh, maybe... Uh, root effect of including the um, Ogrons. That wasn't my intention. I didn't write the story thinking, I want a Planet of the Apes reference, and so it's, if it feels like this, I should have some apes there. No, it, um, I like little references, but I don't like those to drive the story. I like to create the story first. Sometimes the connections are in hindsight. Sometimes they are deliberate once I think of, a, of an idea. But um, I decided to include the Ogrons. Um largely out of, um, it's in a small way out of a little bit of fan service, of course, and there's nothing wrong with fan service or nostalgia. I mean, fan service meaning nostalgia. Um, in the sense of um, that the Ogrons had appeared, um, I was about to say in two of Pertry's three Dalek stories, but not quite. You almost say one and a half, just in that they appear in, and of course, if everyone knows, but I will say them Pertwee has three television Dalek stories. He has many more now, thanks to books and audios and comics and such, but there are three television Dalek stories. Day of the Daleks, um, Plan of the Daleks, and Death to the Daleks. And um, for completion's sake, I suppose I can say that uh, that's season 9, 10, 11. For completion's sake, in season 8, a doll, the image of a Dalek and, this, and someone speaking, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and I say that because the way the Dalek sounds in the mind of evil when the Doctor's having his vision doesn't sound like any of the Daleks as they had sounded during the 1960s. Um, 
This was probably someone that just recorded a little bit of dialogue, but it's nice. You have a dollar kind of appearing in season eight. But um, the three main um, Dalek stories for Pertwee. In one of them, and in, a, in the story immediately preceding the next of these, the Ogrons appear. And um, the Ogrons have always been... Um, they've been an interesting race for me. They've never exactly been on my mind in terms of extreme interest or extreme... Um, um, intrigue or ex extreme um, desire to explore them further. And to be fair, I don't really explore. I don't explore them, uh, their the nature of their race or their motivations or their culture at all in this story. They are exactly what they were meant to be in the Pertwee films, which is simply hired muscle, probably enslaved muscle. But in any case, maybe a special kind of elite slave to the Daleks. Although maybe not. It's an interesting... It is an interesting situation. But the main thing that... There is one thing that intrigues me, which is... When it comes to the Ogrons. Is that prior to that story... Um, I want to make sure I'm thinking about all the television Dalek stories. Um, prior to that story, the closest thing that we had to the Daleks employing other beings to do their... Um, to do their bidding... Of this, of that type, were the Robo Men, in um, in the Dalek invasion of Earth. Um, and I, well, I suppose by extension, you could argue a little bit that anyone possessed or at least infected with the Varga plants, in things like Mission of the Unknown or the um, Dalek Master Plan. Um, and maybe <laughs> this is stretching even more, but maybe the the people that are somewhat um, made like Daleks mentally, like uh, Maxtable, um in um, Professor Maxtable in Evil of the Daleks. But even so, um, you didn't have really an alien race that aren't, as far as we can tell, um, controlled by the Daleks. It's all the things that I just mentioned. They were somehow controlled by the Daleks, you know, as, you know, either lobotomized, ro robotized, or, or infected with some type of Scaro wildlife. But the Ogrons just um, seem to be heavies, uh, hired muscle. Or like I said, just a moment ago, hired muscle or enslaved muscle. It's never quite made clear. They are probably slaves to the Daleks, and yet they are, um, they're not, they don't seem to be controlled. They, just, they seem to be creatures of limited intelligence, possibly, who, um, who exist to be the foot soldiers, a certain type of foot soldiers for the Daleks. It's an interesting situation, as I say, because aside from that story and their appearance in Frontier Space, where they're being, you know, where they are being um, used by the Master, probably provided by the Daleks um, in that story. The Ogons don't appear again. They don't even appear in death to the Daleks. They don't even make it through all of the uh, Pertwee era. Um, so... Uh, it's not extreme interest on my part, but, but a moderate interest in the sense of what was it that made the Daleks want to use the Ogrons? Probably, in my mind, in my headcanon, um, I like to think that the Daleks as we see them in Day of the Daleks, um, in, in the era of the Pertwee years, are probably a bit weakened, not structurally, but their empire is, their numbers are quite reduced probably after the events of Evil the Daleks. It's, it's, Evil the Daleks is a story in terms of its effect on 
Dalek history that I think is probably, perhaps rightfully so, because it would be hard to, um, you almost have to reboot the Daleks given the ending of Evil the Daleks, but because the Daleks continue after Evil the Daleks. That's a story that, in my opinion, is a wonderful story, but in many ways is a missing adventure, not just because the episodes no longer, or at least they're not known to exist, but the effects of Dalek, um, of the humanized Daleks, Alpha, Beta, and Omega, in that story, and the effects that they've had on, on Dalek civilization are sadly not really explored uh, ever too much again in you know, maybe echoes of it in terms of you know various Dalek factions, and yet what that story, Evil the Daleks, might have done to affect Dalek history has never really been explored. I don't really have the time in my the final game to explore. It never wasn't really my intention. It's not really the the intent of the story to explore Dalek culture post Evil the Daleks. But I felt it was necessary at least to um, countenance and acknowledge that story at the at the climax of part four of the final game. But at this point in the story, maybe my head canon, It's not a firm idea, but maybe after Evil the Daleks, the Dalek Empire has been reduced significantly, so they need. Um, against their, <laughs> against you know, begrudgingly, reluctantly, they need muscle to help restore their, um, their their empires. So because they don't have the numbers or the resources or maybe even the the genetic uh, strands, I don't know the genetic material left in their own mutants to um, to command an empire on their own anymore. Later on, as we see in many, you know the later eras of Doctor Who, the Daleks are alone again. So it's an interesting little blip in Dalek history in the Pertwee years that you have these Ogrons around. So that interests me, just in, the, in that little, what would be an aberration of Dalek culture. They're using these, uh, these other, another alien race. So, um, on that note, just because I felt it would be um, of, the, of the era, uh, I decided to use the Ogrons. Um, I, in the context of the final game, as the doctors explain and, ben, and everyone has explained to Sarah Jane, uh, I don't get into the internal politics, so to speak, of why the Daleks use the Ogrons beyond just simply the answer they use them sometimes as um, as soldiers and hired muscle. Um, but it still intrigues me, and I think I would like to explore that one day. Um, other authors have, so I, I recommend any of this, like Gareth Roberts and his some of his stories, I think is The Romance of Crime. It's a fourth Doctor uh, Virgin Adventure, Missing Adventure, it's now an audio. I believe it is The Romance of Crime, which features Ogrons. And, um, David A. McKinty's novel, Mission of Practical, features Ogrons. That's so a sixth Doctor story. The... Um, Lawrence Miles' novel Interference features in Ogrons and the Eighth Doctor. So there are plenty of stories that feature Ogrons. Um, I think they're even Tenth Doctor comics. It, it, they're a race I'd love to see again. So uh, partly all of nostalgia sense, too, is that they're one of those races that appeared a little more than once, but more than once in, in the classic era and then never, never, has to this day not returned on screen. Uh, they, it would be neat to give them kind of a, a modern-day retooling, see how they are. So I give them a rest... Um, a restored appearance um, in the final game. Incidentally, the audios used them also in um, the Seventh Doctor audio, Return of the Daleks. I'm sure they've shown up in some of the Eighth Doctor audios too. Um, they have, I know that. Yes. In any case, um, 
once the the TARDIS crew escapes the Ogrons, they come across a whole settlement of Daleks, maybe hundreds of thousands of Daleks, as Benton says. And at that moment, this is when the Master returns. A Dalek saucer appears, a long, you know, assault saucer model, and um, and then you hear the Master's voice, and he's taunting the crew, saying they, they can't escape, and then the Daleks arrive, other Daleks, and, and the TARDIS crew's captured. And then the scene, of course, then shifts to a Dalek slave camp. Um, and I need to give a shout-out to Sarah, Wheat, uh, Sarah Wheatley, our um, Sarah Jane actress, when we wrote the story, when I, when I wrote the script, um, and I say we to a certain extent because she um, very rightly um, um, requested a little bit of a, a scene for Sarah Jane. Uh, and I asked her, I had asked her, is there anything, because I was very grateful that she was uh, willing to help voice this character, and she's done a wonderful job. And I'm sure everyone can see this. They've given her, singled her as great, with a lot of praise for her performance. Uh, I I would ask her after we, you know writing each episode. I said, "Is there anything you else you'd like to um, include for Sarah Jane?" And for and for the most part, she said, "Oh, everything's really good." With this part, she said, "I would like to have, if possible, I'd like to have a scene where she um, comments about slavery, um, because I feel that she would have something to say, more uh, um, something very meaningful to say." And I and I said, "I agree." I'm happy to do that. So I wrote a little speech where she comments on the injustice of slavery and the and the uh, the uh, abominable and abhorrent um, nature of of human slavery. She, when she says ultimately, there are still people. And so the um, and there are nice little moments of dialogue where the doctor says, "The problem with Ogrons, they're so slow. They tell you to do, they tell you to do something so slowly, you you already have done it <laughs> by the time they finish." But the doctor and his uh, group are. And the the unit, unit friends, of course, are um, placed in a holding cell. And um, this moment was a very was an interesting moment for me because, um, again, although the do, the master has made his presence known at this point, he has not physically appeared in the episode. You've heard his voice, but they haven't. The doctor and the master have not interacted yet. And so, I wanted to. Keep continue that for a little while longer, and yet give the master a, a presence in the story without actually, without a physical presence, and it also to increase a sense a little bit of psychological war, war, um, offense uh, warfare against the doctor and his friends when they enter the when they're placed inside the Dalek cell, the holding cell. Um, the lights go out, and so there's a sense of they want to make us feel hopeless and powerless, and so the doctor pull moves a. I want to call it a flashlight. I'm an American, but you know the British. You know, I think British call it a torch. Of, well, they do. But um, so he pulls out a flashlight, and the flashlight darkens. And this is, as it says in the script, this is a deliberate callback to Death to the Daleks. Um, and this was an intent of mine to give again give the Master a presence in season eleven of Doctor Who, as I tried to do before, by making little references to. Whereas the master in season eleven, okay, he's he's in a unit prison, but still he might. I give a little tease of this in, um, I believe it was part three. Yes, in part three of the final game, the doctor asks the master once he keeps finding all this time more technology on board the the Daleks. He says, "What other secrets have you given the Daleks?" And the master says, "Well, I like not much." Just and then he makes a reference to plague missiles, 
missiles, as as uh, they're called in the in the um, classic era British pronunciation, um, at the least our you know received pronunciation for the BBC, and that's a little reference to again death to the Daleks, a sense of may, maybe the do- the master. Um, again, giving my hand a, a little bit of a, a finger in the pie of season eleven, saying, "Oh, this is his; these plague missiles are his technology." But then I give him a couple more fingers in the pie, in that he is very much aware of the um, Exelon and the Great City and its energy um, dampening technology. And so I wanted to give the the Doctor a moment to have kind of have a mysterious moment, a very kind of hopeful moment, when things seem hopeless. His friends have been captured, the earth has fallen, humanity are, is enslaved, the few survivors are poor wretches in, in cages, and he and his friends are now in a cage, and the lights are, are gone, and they can't, and they can't uh, shine any light. So the doctor uh, um, pulls out a little jar from his, um, I think it's kind of a larger jar than can fit in his pockets, but in any case he pulls out this little jar and uh, removes these uh, photon flies. And oh, this was just something that I really would have loved to have seen in, in a Pertuiera episode. These would, would be just probably fireflies or something like it, but just these glowing orbs of light that uh, just fill the room. So just floating, you know, well, never really decided on a color, but uh, being the Pertuiers, I think <laughs> since it's the mid-70s by this point, I think they would be multicolored. Um... Not ostentatious or, or gaudy or outrageous, just but just shifting beautiful colors, and um, it was just my little addition to something extra, another planet, another world, another species in the uh, in in the in the tapestry of Doctor Who, and uh, of course at this point light reveals things, and we see uh, we hear the broken whimpering uh, um, probably by now former Prime Minister Jeremy Thorpe. I want to give wonderful uh, kudos and, and recognition and appreciation to Mark McManus. So thank you, Mark, for your performance in this episode. It, uh, it was, it's very haunting to hear the very proud and, and in control uh, Jeremy Thorpe reduced to a, a whimpering, uh, uh, broken and, and wretched wreck of a man who's seen his soldiers killed, he's seen his world destroyed, He's seen the Daleks trample his um, the United Kingdom and everything. Um, he was never a king, but he is uh, the political leader of his country, and he has seen his country by his. He opened the gate. He helped open the gate and allowed the barbarians essentially to ravage ravage his world, his nation, and his planet. So he's um, he's lost everything, and uh, a nice little. A nice little moment that I wanted to include in a uh, moment that I wanted to include in this story was, of course, Thorpe explaining himself a little bit more, saying why he's this, is this way. Kind of, to a certain extent, it's the usual situation. Oh, the hero's here, but he always brings the bad things. Things were fine before he came. Of course, it wasn't. Things were fine because the hero was always there. Sometimes we lose sight of the we 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 distrust or malign or revile the heroes before us. Because we just we simply don't know how much they have sacrificed to help us. Um, but in in, in, the, in his ex, in his explanations of his motivations, of course, I I felt it was appropriate to to indicate that um, 
um, to name drop some events that um, uh, led Thorpe to his situation. There is, a, I think I've mentioned this, there is a, um, um, there's a third Doctor, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Big Finish uh, Short Trips um, story called Damascus, where the third Doctor and Jeremy Thorpe meet for possibly the first time, but it's, it is definitely Jeremy Thorpe. And Jeremy Thorpe resolves at the end of that story um, that um, that he feels that the Doctor's morality can't be trusted, so he needs to put a stop to him. Big Finish, as far as I know, I've never done a follow-up to that adventure. And I think largely one of the reasons why you they could do a uh, they could do such a story, but um, um, from the at least from the BBC's perspective, on I think it's on the BBC Doctor Who website, they they have a little section where they talk about Jeremy Thorpe and they talk about how the events of the Green Death and and other events, um, but like the Green Death, brought about the end of his government, the 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 Labour government that never was essentially the Labour government was. Um, never led by Jeremy Thorpe as Prime Minister. He led the Labour Party, but not the government as Prime Minister. Um, so, um, from their perspective, it's the events of the Green Death and such that, that kind of toppled that government. So I, I decided to, to, um, to adapt that continuity, or at least that implied continuity, um, to this story. And then also adapt and incorporate um, the Thorpe and his reaction to the Doctor in Damascus, the, the audio Damascus, to culminate in this adventure. So his his impression of the Doctor in Damascus, and then his the weakening of his government, not the toppling, but the weakening of the, his government and his party after the events of um, the Green Death and the fall of Global Chemicals. My idea, he's um, he's <laughs> he. He might have certain sympathies, but he definitely also is a businessman, so he um, has an indefinite um, interest in global chemicals. So when global chemical falls in the Green Death, that affects him, and he knows the doctors involved, so he's quite, um, uh, he's quite incensed against the doctor and his meddling. And then I add the detail that I felt was important for a few reasons, that Thorpe is, was um, the, he would be, <laughs> If he's the Prime Minister in the Green Death and then the final game, he should be <coughs> excuse me, the Prime Minister in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And <coughs> excuse me. The idea was that he's already had Thorpe and his government have already experienced several blows after throughout the Third Doctor's era. And he experiences this a major blow in the, the Green Death and then an even another blow in the Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And so, um, it's like the last straw, so to speak. And it happens to not quite coincide, but not, it's that shortly after the Master's arrival and surrender to Unit on Earth, which would be shortly before the events of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. So it sets up, how does this work? Thorpe is already distrustful of the Third Doctor. Suddenly this, the Master shows up, he's in custody. Thorpe is able to arrange meetings with the, doc with, the, um, with the Master and to become friends. Um... And the master corrupts Thorpe in that way, saying, hey, look, he doesn't hypnotize him, because he doesn't want to make his presence known in that way, he doesn't want to show his hand. But he shows, hey, I'm, I, I'm like you, I'm your friend. I don't trust the doctor, he might be a problem. Maybe I'm not the bad guy, maybe the doctor is. And these aliens, 
I happen to know these people called the Daleks. They're, they're, do they're do doctors and enemies too, and the enemy of my enemy, as you know, so to speak. This gave me the chance um, to add a few things that I've wanted to do in relation to the invasion of the dinosaurs. Um, which have a lot to do with the fact that I think that uh, um, the Delgado Master should have been in that story in the first place. I really honestly feel that. And the reason why I feel this way is because, um, largely because it's a consequence of the final game not being made, that Delgado's presence in the Pertwee era um, feels very much incomplete by nature, not by design, but by consequence of his death. And therefore, because he never has that one last appearance, which was, um, as far as we know, the only intended further appearance that Delgado's master would have made, it feels like he should be in, because he, by, by, by virtue of his absence in the other stories preceding um, the, what would have been the final game, preceding certainly Plan the Spiders, and then coming after Frontier in Space, those, um, let's see, those six stories... Um, excluding Plan the Spiders because that's a different situation, but those six stories feel like they, they in a in a in a way they are fine, excellent stories on their own. But they, you feel, they long for <coughs> some of them more than others, but they long for Delgado's absence. Um, they long for Delgado's presence. They don't suffer for his absence, but they, they there is a small lack um, afterwards. Um, for his not being there, certainly. Um, through no fault of anyone, but even so. As I say, though, some stories of that late Pertwee era, more so than others, really uh, are, in my opinion, begging for the Master to, to appear. And in my opinion, the top three contenders, not contenders, but the top three... Um, um, constituents, really, of this little group of, of um, stories that could have, maybe even should have the Master are Planet of the Daleks, The Green Death, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Planet of the Daleks, simply because it's the second half of a story that featured the Master in its first half, or well, a second quarter, meeting Frontier in Space. Although I, and I, but I can, I really want the Master to be in that story. He sh perhaps he should have been, but I can understand why he's not. Um, because um, there, it's already a story full of characters. Daleks, um, the Supreme Dalek also, um, the Spiridon, um, invisible creatures, uh, the Spiridonians, the, uh, the Thals. It's a very full story as it is, and you already have very dominant villains in the Daleks. And a dominant kind of, a uh, very prominent leader figure in the Supreme Dalek. To have the Master appear perhaps would be surplus requirements. I would love to have him appear in any story, every story, but perhaps would be too much. The Green Death, it's a very strong story on its own. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the Master, although he doesn't have to be in that story, by that point in the Pertwee era, with the exception of Inferno, the Master, up to that point, had appeared in the previous um, finales for the Pertwee seasons. He was in the Daemons, he was in the Time Monster. It feels right that he should be in the Green Death, in my opinion, because it's a finale, and he's a major villain by that point, point. he's established arch-enemy of the Doctor. 
and yet he's not there. You even have a almost a surrogate master in the boss uh, computer. Um, I can remember the first time, one impression I had listening to, uh, watching the Green Death and hearing the voice of the boss was vaguely thinking to myself, is, it, is, that the, is this the master? Of course he's not. But maybe it was just to my very young, very tiny years, but the sense of maybe these, is this the master? Who knows? The fan in me wants to um, create a story where maybe the boss was um, imprint, its, its circuits were imprinted with the master's mind somehow. I think that's going perhaps a little too far. The master doesn't have to be the force behind every single situation in Doctor Who. But I certainly think the boss deserves some expansion in terms of what it, what it was and its ascension computer and such, a villainous ascension computer. I think it's... um. I'd have to make sure. I think that the Big Finish audios have expanded, or some maybe the books have expanded the boss's um, um, kind of a second generation of um, Wotan from the um, uh, the War Machines. If that's the case, then that that makes sense. But then that would um, necessitate necessitate the situation. Well, then what made Wotan sentient? There, I think maybe you can involve the master. You never know. But um, in any case. The, uh, the Green Death, I think, has a little more room to feature the, ma the Master, maybe as a villain. But again, you already have a very strong villain there at, in, um, in um, Boss. And Stevens, his, uh, his uh, human surrogate. Even so, by tradition almost by that point, you expect the Master to be in a finale, and he's not. Well, then that leaves Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Invasion of the Dinosaurs... Um, unlike the first two stories that I just mentioned, which were produced during Delgado's lifetime, where he, in some alternative way, could have been there, all things being cool, he would not have been in Invasion of the Dinosaurs because, sadly, he was dead, the, the actor. But say he's alive by the time you make... Imagine a world where the final game was made in Doctor Who, therefore Delgado's alive during the making of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I definitely feel that that's a story where he should have appeared. I absolutely feel that. Um... Because you have a big situation, you have the conspiracy, the conspiracy of the, the, the government ministers and the scientists and the military officers um, is quite a momentous event when you really think about it. It's quite an enemy at the gates type of situation where who do you trust? Everyone could be working against you, even your friends, as, as you see with Mike Yates. But it's a far-reaching conspiracy. Um as I say, involving unit soldiers, regular army sol officers, government ministers, um, uh, scientists and such. But there are some interesting events that happen in that story that just are screaming for, in my opinion, the master's involvement. One of them, and I make, and therefore that's why I decided to take the chance in the final game to take the opportunity to say, okay, yes, the master is behind the events of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Because if you really think about it, in my opinion, who else would be behind it? You think of, if you think about it, you have a situation where scientists, I'm not saying that humans can't, can't be brilliant, but in the context of Doctor Who, modern-day scientists, without apparent future technology, create a time machine that can create these basic time disturbances and can pull dinosaurs or other people, you know, like there's a, there's a, might have been a nice little callback to the, the previous story, Time Warrior, but a kind of a medieval man, 
um, into the present day of London and cause havoc. But not just that. You have a situation where the um, the doctor has his molecular um, uh, his molecular um, I can't remember the name of it, but his um, his disruptor gun. You know this gun to immobilize the dinosaurs. This molecular disruptor, essentially, and and I mentioned in part three, it was a he he, he has such a disruptor in and kind of a Mark II in part three of the final game. I mentioned this in the previous uh, confidential installment. Well, again, that was an intentional callback to that story, kind of the continuity and the evolution of t um, technology that might appear in one story and you see it reappear in another story, like the Who-Mobile. Um, I made that decision to introduce something from Invasion of the Dinosaurs in, in Part 3 so that I could, in the listener's mind, in the audience's mind, it would make sense to recall that story once again. In part four, and the use of that technology would already be in some the listener's mind, so that I could make a specific reference to a, a very odd piece of technology that shows up also in uh, in opposition to the Doctor's uh, molecular disruptor, which is the um, the um, cancellation circuit. That um, oh, it's been a while since I watched the episode, so I'd have to remember. The, um, the character's name, just a moment. I'm going to look it up right now. Here it is. The actor Martin Jarvis played this this character. And um, I'm sure anyone listening could probably say, oh, it's him. It's not P Professor Whitaker, it's Butler. Professor Whitaker is played by Peter Miles, um, who had appeared in some other Doctor Who stories before and after. Most notably as Niter in Genesis of the Daleks afterwards. Uh, Butler was another scientist, very, um, apparently real-life Martin Jarvis is a very, very sweet man, but um, uh, Butler is this very odious and um, unpleasant, kind of a, a very haughty and self-possessed, self-assured, absorbed man, kind of a... Um, Martin Martin Jarvis himself is is a, is, a, is a very handsome man, and so he kind of is. There's this he plays his character. He's a, he's a he's a handsome man. He's a very intelligent man. So he's got he's very and a very arrogant man. He's always very um, sneering at other people, even especially at Mike Yates. I like to think that Butler feels that Mike Yates isn't worthy to be. He's necessary, but I always felt from the performance that he felt that he was necessary to have Mike Yates, but he was unworthy to be there. He was unfit to be there. He wasn't an intellectual elite or something. Uh, but Butler um, has this, um, I believe it was Butler. I could be mixing up with Professor Whitaker in this story, but I think it is Butler who has the, um, when, when Mike Yates says the doctor has a machine and he can ca use it to capture the dinosaurs, well, they just pull out this uh, little circuit. Oh, use this and it'll disrupt the doctor's machine. Well, I always thought to myself, for the purposes of that story, that's fine. All you need is, okay, if it's just a machine, here's this little circuit, and it can, it'll disrupt electrical circuits or something like that. But I always thought to myself, ah, it's not a flaw in the episode, but I always felt on a deeper level, how in the world were these guys, number one, how are they able to build and create, just on their own, a time machine? And then how, then how in the world 
on a deeper level than just it works in the in the context of the story, but on a deeper level. How in the world would they even know that this little circuit could disrupt the doctor's machine? They don't know the machine. They've never seen the schematics. They don't know what powers it. They don't know how the um how how the uh, how how the circuits interact, how they are integrated, how they um, channel power. Now, again, for the purpose of the story, you don't need, the viewer doesn't need to know that. All they need to know is, oh, here's the little thing that will break the doctor's toy, essentially, and that's scary. But from me, from a writer's perspective, from now, you know, a, a, a fan that um, has watched the episode but now is reading it at different levels, it wasn't enough anymore just think, oh, they just, they just have the technology. I think, no, how do they have the technology? How in the world do they have the technology? The Doctor's a Time Lord. It's probably not Time Lord science. It's applied, it's applied sciences, but made by a very brilliant man. How do these guys just pull out literally out of a pocket, a coat pocket, oh, use this, and it'll, it'll stop the Doctor's machine? There was enough evidence in the story that as a writer I could make a credible claim that they are receiving this technology from another source. That there's an, another intelligence behind this whole Operation Golden Age. And therefore I thought, well, what's an easy answer? The Master. And it would make sense in that he's at that time, tra um, possibly, supposedly but on Earth, imprisoned. What else is he doing to, to uh, pass the time? Maybe cause some chaos. Causing Operation Golden Age. Um, and so I very firmly want to say, yes, the Master was, he wasn't in Operation Golden Age, he wasn't in, I mean, he's not on screen Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but he is a presence in that story. I have always felt that he was a presence because he should have been there, in my opinion. Um, not to supersede the final game. Because again, had the final game been made per Delgado's request to, to make, have only one more story, he would not have been in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but... In hindsight, I think we can expand the Master's presence a little bit more. So, he's the governing force. He's the uh, brains behind, the true bad guy behind Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Why, you might ask? Well, who knows? Maybe it's what I, it's what I said. Maybe there's a little bit more. We'll have to wait. Possible spoilers. Um, but, um, having said all that... Um, Again, this was a little bit of connection, and that ties also to um, uh, what I said about the Master applying the technology of the Exelons or the Great City in this scene where the lights are dropping. So just a sense of giving the Master a stronger presence, off-screen perhaps, but making his on-screen, quote-unquote, his on-audio presence here connect to his awareness and um, governance and influence over season, events in Season 11. And this is then ground, further grounded and developed and elaborated through Thorpe's um, explanations that the Master was behind certain events. It also gave us a chance to show Yates as a person and his empathy and his way to connect and reach the distraught and broken Jeremy Thorpe. Because when the Brigadier says, why are you doing this? Why have you done this, sir? And Thorpe's initial reaction is, what does it matter? You think I'm a criminal anyway. So he's, he doesn't really respond to, to Lethbridge Stewart. But Yates says, well, you can, a you can tell me, sir. The Brigadier's never been a traitor, but I have. Not long ago, I was a traitor to the situation. Then Thorpe says, yeah, oh, yes, you were. I wasn't exactly involved. He said, he kind of, you know, straddles the line. He says, I was involved in that. He says, well, at least I sympathize. He perhaps was aware. In my mind, Thorpe was able to create some plausible deniability. What allows him to be still prime minister by the time you get to the final game is that he was perhaps aware of what was happening. 
uh, but tangentially. He's aware by association. He knows the master's doing it at that point. He knows that he's causing things. He's perhaps sympathetic to some of the causes, but he himself was not involved um, on the ground, so to speak, with Operation Golden Age. That's why he's still the prime minister. But he was aware of what was happening, but he felt it was necessary. He perhaps felt it was necessary as a, as a, a precursor or something to what's happening here in the final game. Again, spoilers. You think, well, how do these things tie together? They do. But we, but you don't know that in part four. And I'm not going to say it yet. <laughs> Wait until next time. Um, and so, at this point, there's a sense of what, what, what do we do? And the master's saying, well, the doctor, of course, says, well, the master's very, always involved in things, even now. And then, of course, he's able to sense the master's presence. And the master finally arrives and enters the cell. And from this point... Um, the story of the episode is actually nearly com complete at this point, uh, but of course the, the master is still his very charming self. I wanted to make it him very much like Delgado, um, very much in charge, very much aware, very much uh, calm, and fe and very um, self-assured because from his perspective, and perhaps rightfully so, he's already won. The end. He explains, of course, that. Uh, he kind of he taunts Doctor Lightly, saying, "This isn't all my fault, you know." I said, "What do you mean?" Of course, and he, saying, "You know, when when you entered your TARDIS, you did me a favor." He, he's explaining, of course, he explains along the way um, that this is partly the Doctor's doing because the Doctor interfering with the temporal transplant involving his, the TARDIS in a way pulled everyone forward into the, this future. Um, it's not really specified how far into the future it is. In my mind, it's not because Thorpe is there. It's not terribly long. But um, farther enough into the future that that uh, it it uh, spared the Master in a little way some time. It brought them to a future that, that was about to occur that has now occurred. Um, and so going forward at this point, uh, the Master, t you know, you know he, he persuades the Doctor with his veiled threats, of course, to keep, not to cause trouble. And so... The, Every, and he's and he says his friends can come with him. Of course, they have a part to play too. Everyone goes together to a temple to another transmat device that the master has helped the Daleks to create. And of course, the, you have Daleks here. And um, and every and again, kudos to wonderful kudos and shout out to Gareth Severn with his uh, sound design and creating a very imposing and frightening sounding um, transmat or teleportation sound. And the um, at this point, there's this question of where are they going? Where are they taking us? Oh, we'll find out. And so everyone teleports, the Master and the Doctor and his friends, to another location, and it's shown to be identical. And this was a sense of, um, this was a deliberate mention. Liz, Liz says, we haven't moved. It's the same place. And the Master says, are you so sure, Miss Shaw? Of course. And this was a sense that uh, on screen had this been made, um, this is to evoke a sense of uniformity. On the screen, had this been made, I feel there's a good chance that you would have seen the same set um, uh, to save money, of course. But also, again, show the uniformity of the, the Daleks and their architecture and such. And this is where the Supreme Dalek arrives. And the Supreme Dalek, uh, again, wonderful shout-out to, again to James Hart for his uh, recreation of the Dalek voices. In my mind, this is the same... Um, not just the same design, but it is the same Dalek, the same pre same Supreme Dalek from uh, Plot of the Daleks, which is totally possible because that particular Dalek uh, escapes. He d he's not destroyed at the end of Planet of the Daleks. So, 
So again, this, and I, to give reference, because he looks so different, because this is like a kind of a black and, black and gold purple Dalek. Um, I have Lethbridge Stewart say, Doctor, what kind of Dalek is that? <laughs> because the, the Brigadier's met Daleks before on several occasions. Of course, he's met them in Day of the Daleks. Um, and I, when I, I, when I wrote the final game, of course, I wasn't aware of this story. Probably hadn't been written yet, or certainly not recorded. Probably not. But there's the upcoming big finish uh, audio from the Third Doctor's Volume Six, um, Poison of the Daleks, where the Brigadier and Benton will meet the Daleks again. So, and um, not giving away anything when I say that that story won't be referenced in the final game because I wasn't aware of it when I wrote this. But uh, the the but it just adds to the tapestry and the 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 um the volume of awareness and knowledge of the, to the characters that yes the brigadier knows what Daleks look like and so but he hasn't seen something like the supreme Dalek before so or at least nothing not a Dalek that looks like that one it's very different um even on screen and play the Daleks you're like wow that thing looks a lot different from the Daleks so we know um. I'm sure there's a history to that that Dalek. I was reading it where some of the Daleks from Terry Nation's own collection, how uh, they made their way from in different productions. I wouldn't. I'll have to look that one up again and see if um, one of those was the Supreme Dalek in Planet of the Daleks, uh, one of Terry Nation's own Dalek uh, models. But in any case, um, the Supreme Dalek, of course, leads everybody through these corridors, and then there's a reference, of course, Sergeant saying, "Why are there always these corridors around?" And and um, the, I think the Doctor says, "Give." He enjoys them in a way, but then we have wonderful sound design of the of the entry codes and then the opening of doors and the entrance to this large space, which Benton calls a cathedral. Feels like a cathedral, and of course, this is the Emperor Dalek's throne room. And of course, the intention that I had, and then of course, this reveals that this that they are on the planet Scaro. Now, why? No, so I I wanted to take the action to Scarl, and this is part. Of, this ties back to what I started at the beginning of this little segment, which is transition. The um, the events of this story up to this point, the first three parts and the majority of part four, really first four parts until the very end, have been earthbound. Um, and whenever they have the chest, we'll go to this ship or something. They're not able to go to the ship, you know, maybe because the, the force fields around the planet. I'm talking about the TARDIS. The Doctor's TARDIS going to the the alien fleet, it's the Dalek fleet, as they discover, but, you know, they always stay on Earth until the very end of Part 4. Um, but even in, when they're on Earth, they're in a place that looks exactly on Earth like it does on Scarrow, a, a slave labor camp or something, and certainly a transmet room. They might as well be on another alien world. Even even when they're on Earth, Earth is ultimately looks like what Scarrow would look like. In my mind, they look the same because the Daleks have bombarded it with radiation, destroyed the planet. And so it's transitional. Earth, its traditional sense of become Earth in a radical sense, and we shift to the traditional, but still radically different from Earth, Skaro. Um, so completing and continuing the transition, we've gone from Earth to Skaro, from humans to Daleks, from safety to danger. Um, and there's one further transition, of course. I'll get, I will get to that in a moment. It's the concluding moment, uh, event of this episode. But in terms of sound design, the Emperor Throne Room, of course, I... Um, I wanted to, the intention is that this is the same throne room as was in M Evil the Daleks, except, like with anything, if you revisit it and you want it to be 
grander if you revisit when you're very small and you see something on television it seems very big as you get older when you return oftentimes it might seem as smaller because you've seen other things you've gone from television to film or from film to an epic blockbuster or something and so with more experience you if you lose the innocence perhaps of just being able to immerse yourself in a story you see the the nuts and bolts that put um which an alien world together and therefore you see it as a stage or something not exactly it's a little bit different though of course with evil the daleks because um that throne room appears only in part six and seven of the evil the daleks and those episodes no longer exist we have photos we have some behind the scenes footage or maybe some footage that still exists a little bit um but it's it's all these explosions so we have a sense of what that throne room looked like fairly minimalist set with just a lot of these like cage like um bars and and uh, like a cage like structure and uh, you know, which evokes the sense of uh, a support system for the emperor dalek itself you know this immobile beast um to a certain extent caged or or connected by tubes to a life support system um so my intent was it's the same place same throne room same location just probably larger and redesigned a bit um so those same kind of uh, that same web-like, but very icy web, <laughs> or or ca a web cage um, architecture exists still. Just probably now in the rafters and the ceiling and the walls and maybe the maybe even the floor. I don't know, but it's just a larger place. This very scary um, stone or um, cage cathedral. The Emperor Dalek, um, how does how does it look in this era? Well, um, I remember the, um, I wanted, I always like a sense of progression. You have, on screen, you have two stories with the Emperor Dalek. You've got Evil the Daleks and you have Parting of the Ways. From RTD's perspective, as he said, I, I agree with him that it's the same Emperor. But they look very, very, very different. Um, so you have these two endpoints. In my mind, any featuring of the Daleks doesn't have to go on a strict linear progression, but I like to think that any time you feature it in different eras, not necessarily every single story, quote-unquote, but from one era to maybe another era, you should have some progression from one extreme look to another. And so in my mind, the Dalek, the Emperor Dalek, the Emperor in this story, will look more like the evil Daleks incarnation or version than the parting of the ways, but it won't look exactly the same as Evil of the Daleks. And that was further, um, the, the beginning of that I, kind of opinion was when I first heard the audio, The Mutant Phase, which is the fifth Dr. Nyssa audio from quite a while ago now, from Big Finish Productions. And it has an interesting history in terms of visual art, that audio, <laughs> in that you think, well, what's visual in an audio? Well, the cover, the CD or the audio cover, you know, the art, cover art. And uh, the initial cover art, nice little historical trivia for that story, is that the initial cover art featured, you know, the Fifth Doctor and Nissa's faces, but then also uh, a Dalek of some type. Now, if you were to see the cover art now, the official cover art, you would just see, it would just be a regular Dalek, a silver Dalek. Um, but the original cover design features something very different. It's a Dalek. And I remember the, for the first time seeing it and saying, what in the world kind of Dalek is this? It's a very large, bulbous head, like round-headed thing with an eye stalk, and it's gold. 
or maybe um, tarnished gold, but you know it's a dark gold color. It's a, it's a large Dalek, but it looks very. It doesn't look like a Dalek exactly. It does yet doesn't. Not like nothing we saw on screen at least. It's based on I think the nineteen uh, a Dalek emperor type, or at least a leader Dalek from the nineteen sixties in the in these uh, comics. In fact, again, I will uh, look it up and see where. Um, what was the? Yeah, here it is. The. Oh yes, the Golden Emperor. From things like the comic The Rogue Planet, which is from 1966. Um, so the comics by David Whitaker and such. Um, so interesting little story, you know, that features the mechanoids and from the TV Century. 21 issues 59 through 62, 5 through 26 March 1966. You've got a Dalek. That is an emperor Dalek, but it's gold. It's a golden emperor, and it and it. Um, it's very interesting that it it predates evil of the Daleks. Um, and that golden emperor is pretty much. I'm, you can't see this, but I'm, you know, checking online and I was seeing a picture of it. It's pretty much the golden emperor design that featured on the original version at the cover of the mutant phase. Um. But ultimately it was decided that, and again I'm looking at it, it's a very weird looking Dalek to be honest. But um, it's understandable why it was changed because I imagine that although it's very cool it's, and it's a little different. And from what I understand, the, the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the intent was, well it doesn't really look like anything that a, a casual fan would recognize as a Dalek. Maybe a little, but it's certainly not something that they would associate with the Davison era. It's that's a choice that probably was relevant and correct then. I imagine had that story been made now, or if they were to reissue it, they might actually keep that cover art because Doctor Who is no longer just what you saw on screen. This is from the very early era um, years. In fact, probably just the first or the second year of Big Finish Audios. So then it was we just pretty much have what's on television. This is before the television series came back. So it was very. I can understand from a business perspective there was perhaps a reliance on what will the um, what will the eyes of the fans when they look at the cover know <coughs> they will know a Dalek they will they will know a, a, a gray or silver Dalek they won't know a gold round headed thing that vaguely looks like a Dalek but it doesn't now I think it's a different story I think they would and perhaps should retain that you have a lot of um, fan art of alternate covers of that story, and in almost all of them, when it features that Dalek, it is pretty much that bulbous-headed Dalek for the Emperor. Well, in my and there's a and there was a line of dialogue in that audio where the Doctor enters the throne room, the Fifth Doctor, and he sees the Emperor Dalek. And he says, "It looks like we've both had a facelift since we last met." Well, I didn't want to. Um, um, I decided not to make a statement like that for for this story for the final game. Um, I just had the Doctor say, oh my gosh, this is the Emperor of the Dalek. He thinks it was destroyed. And he makes reference to to its um, survival, saying also you survive the events of Evil of the Daleks. Which we call back. Um, for all I know, that, that may be superseded one day by a big finish audio which has a third Doctor meet the Emperor Dalek. But that hasn't happened yet. Um, and maybe part of me thinks that it might not, just because... 
I wouldn't be surprised from the big finish perspective. Um, their quote unquote first re meeting is in the mutant phase. Hence that line looks like we both had a facelift, but that still stands because, um, in my mind, the emperor looks different, a little, still a little bit different. Um, in, and if anyone wants to know, in my mind, the Emperor Dalek of the um, final game, as you see him, looks more or less how you see him on the cover, which is and wonderful work to shout out to Marshall Tankersley for his artistic design. Um, I, the one thing I asked him to do when he featured when he designed the cover, he featured the Emperor Dalek, and it was pretty much how it looked initially, the original look as he does in Evil. The one thing I asked him to do was make some type of maybe minor, whatever changes he can make, some minor color changes to show that it is still the Emperor Dalek, but it's not quite the same. So he gave it a, a slightly redder look. Certain parts are, um, some pieces are a little red. It gives it a little bit of red tinge, and its top, its uh, top is, is, is beaming with light. And, um, and so basically, basically that. It's still more or less how it looks in Evil Daleks, but it's got some it has new armor plating, and the armor plating is, are different colors. I like to think, again, a little bit reminiscent of the Supreme Dalek, some purple, some some red, um, some gold. And the gold, of course, would be connecting, foreshadowing the Golden Emperor style of the Fifth Doctor's era, in the audios, at least. And um, one thing I really want to emphasize is my enjoyment of the soundscape of the Emperor Dalek. Um... I don't think I really imagined, envisioned this, but um, uh, this is uh, Gareth's sound design, which is the, um, you hear what, um, bubbling um, liquid um, when the Emperor Dalek is speaking. Now, in Evil Daleks, you see that the Emperor has is connected by tubes, and tubes suggest pumping liquid of some type, something, or at least something being pumped into this casing, probably to keep it cool, to keep it nutri uh, nourished, who knows? Nothing pleasant, I'm sure. But, again, tubes, uh, visual tubes, have no place in an audio medium, unless you just have a picture showing all the time. Uh, but, uh, this, but again, just like giving Ogrons a growl that they don't necessarily have on screen, but to give them an audio impression, an imprint. Uh, Gareth wonderfully, uh, wisely chose some type of liquid, bubbling liquid. In my, and that could presage the, um, the fact that the Emperor Dalek of the new series has... Um, is. Uh, the mutant visible uh, visible behind in a transparent um, container, excuse <coughs> me, filled with liquid. Uh, so we're moving a little bit towards that, perhaps. Um, so I like to think maybe the tubes connecting this version of the Emperor are, um, are perhaps transparent. You can see the liquid bubbling through. Perhaps there's liquid that's a little somewhat transparent or inside its uh, cradial casing. Well, a little bit of speculation, but uh, it's up to the listener. But there's liquid involved. There's a little bit more of a transparency. Um, and, of course, the final transition is that the Emperor Dalek is gloating, saying, of course, I survived, and now you'll be destroyed, Doctor, and all this. Um, but then comes the revelation when the Doctor says, oh, Master, what do you get out of this? Do you think you're going to survive? You'll be destroyed too. You're disposable. And I make a little joke to razors and such. Um, but then comes the big the big revelation that the uh, Emperor Dalek is subservient to the true Emperor of the Daleks, who is the Master. And somehow the Master has become the Emperor of the Daleks, or the ruler and the leader of the, the, the Daleks. And of course, the little bit reminiscent, this was the intention, of course, that the last scene is a little reminiscent at the end of Parting of the Ways, where 
all these Daleks, maybe the, another version of the Dalek Parliament, are saying exterminate, exterminate. We'll have the, this whole the Dalek race saying the Master reigns supreme, over and over again. This chant. It's a uh, and that's your cliffhanger. Um. So the um, it's it's a shorter episode. Of course, I've talked for quite a while here, but nearly an hour and a half. But in any case, it's um, it's a somewhat shorter episode. It's only thirty-seven minutes. That includes the uh, credits. There's probably only thirty-five or six minutes of audio. Oh, definitely because there's a reprise. It's probably not much more than half an hour. It's the closest, maybe the closest one of these episodes that will be to a regular length, um, classic era, television episode. In any case, these were the choices and the thoughts, some of them at least, in my mind, of what was motivating the characters and the what motivated me to my thought, my um, inspiration is to craft the episode in the way that it is. It is a tra- it is a moment of transition. It's a time of transition from Earth to Scarrow, from the first half of the story to the second half of the story, from the uh, building and the inclining of events towards a peak which may or may not uh, appear, you know, the climax events in the next episode, but certainly a lot of things are happening in the next episode. How will the Doctor and his friends stop the Daleks under the control, the supreme control of the Master? Very good question. But for now, I will leave it here, and uh, I'll say thank you again for life, for this, and Mark, for this final game confidential, and I hope that people have enjoyed listening to me my uh, thoughts and experiences writing part four. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you all soon.